Islam and the way of life is all I knew growing up. From a very young age, of the age of three, I started wearing the hijab. And from the age of 10, I started wearing the full covering where you only see the eyes. When I was eight years old, my family and I went for a pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia in Mecca. And suddenly, a big crowd started to gather. And my father and I got pushed to the front of this crowd. In the center of the circle was a woman. She was dressed in all black, completely covered. You could not see her face, her hands, or her feet. And next to her was the Arabic man. And he pulled out this very long golden sword from his side. And he beheaded the woman. I remember when I saw this beheading, it shook me up so much. My heart was going really fast and my legs were shaking. And I knew the reality of the religion I was raised in. When my family and I came to United States, we were just coming here for a visit. And while we were here visiting, war happened in my country and we could not go back home. But we had to stay in America, we were granted asylum. We had to work very hard to be able to live, but we were grateful to be here. I got my driver's license and I would drive by big buildings called churches. And I remember seeing the cross on all these buildings and I often wondered, what is the meaning of the cross? What is the meaning of their faith? What do they believe in? But you know, for eight and a half years, no one shared their faith with me. My grandmother suddenly became very sick and went to the hospital and she had a massive heart attack and she passed away. I knew I was separated from my grandmother forever. I would never see her again. I was very sad and I became depressed and I could not function anymore. And it was at that point a lady at my work approached me. Her name was Paula. And she just put her arms around me and she gave me this hug. Peace just started coming over me from the top to my feet. And then she asked me a question. Would I like to go to her church with her one Sunday? And that was the first time after living in America for eight and a half years, I was invited to a Christian church. And when I walked into this Christian church, I was covered in my, in my covering, Islamic covering. But you know, the people in the church were very friendly to me. They came up to me and they looked me in the eyes and they said, hello, we are so glad you're here today. Thank you for coming. You are welcome in this place. Wow, the receptiveness I got from these people, I've never seen before. They just accepted me and loved me and did not judge me for my covering, but just embraced me for who I was. And there was something different about these people. They had a spirit of love that I've never seen before. So that day, the peace came over me again that came that day when Paula hugged me. And I knew the decision I was making was the truth. And I gave my life to follow Jesus as the Lord of my life. And I want to tell you, my life has changed from that day on. All you have to do is say hello. God will use your love and your spirit in the most powerful way. Have you ever seen a Muslim woman and wanted to reach out but felt fear over what to say? It might not be that you're afraid of her. Maybe you think she's afraid of you or that maybe you'll offend her somehow because your religions are so different. But there she is at the grocery store, the mall, your kid's soccer game. She's your neighbor. Say Hello can help you pair your love for Jesus with your Muslim neighbor. Every Muslim woman is one out of eight people in the world. There are one billion Muslim women, most of whom have never heard the truth about Jesus once. Christian women are every Muslim woman's best, if not only hope for heaven. That really is the heart behind what we do at Say Hello. 
We train globally to equip Jesus followers for the wonderful privilege of outreach to Muslim women. We offer resources and individual guidance as well as small group training. We provide materials that equip people who have never had experience with Muslims before. Bottom line is if you are a Christian woman who wants help knowing how to engage Muslim women, we are here for you. When we say hello to a Muslim woman, we embark on a remarkable journey that can lead scores of Muslim women to salvation encounters with Jesus. Please begin the conversation. Say hello. Isn't her testimony amazing? She, she's quite the gal. Um, we had a video, a video going on our website and for, for some years, and she contacted me. I had no idea who she was. Um, and she contacted me, and we got together, and she said, Linda, I, I, I have an apology to, to make. I'm so sorry. Um, but, you know, I'm a Muslim background believer, and I'm sharing my testimony with other people. And because I identify so much with this video that I found online on your website, I've actually been using your video to promote my to promote my ministry. Is that okay? <laughs> I said, hey, get it out there any way possible. And actually, Sophia has become uh, a, a really a core part of um, what we do at Say Hello. She helps us with many things, um, even though she is quite busy with her own ministry as well. So we love and appreciate her very much. We want to just direct you a little bit to what you have at the table. We realized that the video was about reaching Muslim women. That's because I direct the women's component of Global Initiative Reaching Muslim Peoples. But we're all about reaching men and women. How many of us here know that because of because of Islam's modesty practices, um, we have a gender segregated phase, so to speak, when it comes to outreach. So typically, and we want to say um, this right now from the very beginning, we're looking at ministry um, to Muslim friends and neighbors as woman to woman and man to man. I mean, that's like the sort of the groundwork that we that we go from. We know that many of you probably have friends and you've already been able to cross that gender line with your Muslim male or, you know, female neighbor, but um, but the but the the core, the mandate, the the essence of what Islam communicates to its believers in countries that are majority Muslim is this, you know, it's a gender segregated faith and we'll be talking to you more about that. But that explains why it's say hello serving Muslim women. We just got back from Papua New Guinea teaching um, a women in Islam course to a very um, third world uh, tribal uh, a wonderful group of people, very different from anything that we have anywhere here in the States, but teaching them a course on uh, women in Islam. We had 46 men and four women in that class, you know, because they have Muslim neighbors and it's the same story everywhere. And so these are, um, you know, future leaders in Papua New Guinea who are learning how to equip their churches also for outreach to Muslims. They don't like Muslims very much on that side of the island. And so much, so much of it is, um, is just like uh, what we have here um, but in very different, different contexts. So the, the things that you have at your table 
Um, our resources, the white booklet is the only one that is specific, say, specifically say hello. It's a devotional that's supposed to help women get out of the blocks. We're in the process, I mean, we will launch probably by mid-November, but most of it is already done for the end of October, a five-unit curriculum that is all video-based, has a workbook that goes along with it for women only. Um, then uh, the, the other two booklets that are on the table, these are standard booklets that we have available at Global Initiative. Friends, there is so much more there. So we just want to make sure that you know that if you have any needs for any resources, you can be resourced at reachingmuslimpeoples.com or you can go to our website, sayhelloinfo.com. We, we only are giving you a sampling of what we have and we've got two hours with you today is all. So know that we have just a a vast amount of um, resourcing that we can do for you. One thing that I do want to make sure you know about, your kids on Sunday are going to hear from us at Say Hello as well. We have a kids curriculum that um, we have created to help Christian kids in our churches in the West to know how to outreach to their Muslim friends. And how many of us know that they are already, I mean, they they don't know the difference between, you know, why, why I should or shouldn't be reaching out to somebody else. These are their friends in school. So it's called Forever Friends. Um, a forever change tomorrow and uh, it's a kids curriculum it, it's a five unit uh, curriculum that bases on the word hello because we know that we have to begin with a conversation and that is a prayer that starts with Lord Jesus give me a heart to love others like you do the E is Lord Jesus give me eyes to see people who need you um, and the L is Lord give me lips to say hello to new friends the other L is Lord give me legs to go places with them and the O is Father give me open hands to pray with them and we have an accompaniment an accompanying five comics that go with that curriculum we're leaving a, co a full copy of the curriculum here with you guys with your kids leaders here but want you to know that um, the a gift for you right there at that QR code you can download the PDFs of all of these comics if you would like to just have those for your kids all right, so please um, make use of our curriculum. Um, you know, you can, you can contact us um, at our email addresses. We are here to serve you even um, after we are gone. And now we're going to start uh, with our sharing. Mark is going to cover a part of the, um, of the um, delivery today that has mostly to do with Islamic practice and belief. And then I'll come back and we'll talk more about hospitality and the outreach side of things. And even though we'll, we'll both chime in with each other's presentations. This is Mark. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be here today. I gotta say this, Arabic coffee is fantastic. I mean, Whoever made this really nailed it. I mean, this is authentic. And usually you put a ton of sugar in it, too. Um, a lot of times they'll take a sugar cube, put it between their teeth, and then they'll drink it like that with the sugar cube between their teeth. Uh, a lot of Iranians do that with tea. But then the older people uh, that do it that way, they have like this um, cavity <laughs> in their two front teeth. Don't do that, okay? Um, don't do that. And also the Turkish delight. I mean, we've had lots of Turkish delight in Turkey. This is the best Turkish delight I've ever had. I'm not kidding. Um, you know, uh, in Pakistan, uh, we were missionaries in Pakistan after we uh, church planted and served here in the city of Chicago 10 years on the southwest side near Midway Airport. Uh, so we're, we're Chicagoans too. We love the city. Um, I come alive when I come back to Chicago. Of all the cities I've been in in the world, this is my favorite city. 
It really is. Nothing, nothing better than the city of Chicago. And so we, um, we just really, really think the Turkish Delight is marvelous. I mean, especially with the pistachios on it. And uh, at least save me a piece, okay? Another, here you go. Well, let's get started this morning. We have a lot to talk about. And I pray, and Linda has prayed, that the Lord would give you ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you as the church. It's wonderful to have you out on a Saturday morning. This is a good morning to stay in bed and to drink some coffee and watch some TV and then have some soup for lunch. But here you are, and I believe that it's a prophetic time. What, what great timing on the part of this church of what's happening in Israel and the attack by Hamas upon Israel and now the response by the Israeli Defense Forces and all that's going on. Uh, we really need to pray. You know, God's answer is never through violence, but sometimes just war is necessary. So let's just really pray, not just for the Israelites and Israelis and uh, the Jews of Israel, but let's also pray for the Palestinians as well. I think it's important to know that a lot of Palestinians are Christians, not just Muslims. So a lot of Palestinians are, are Christians. They're true believers in Jesus. But what we're talking about is Muslims today, and we want to be aware of, their, of Muslims and what they believe. And Islam will tout itself as a very simple religion, that we only have five pillars that we adhere to. Some say six, and we're going to talk a little bit about that sixth pillar. And yet, when you look at the Muslim's life, I mean, it gets into the minutia of even how you cut your toenails. I don't mean to be crude and rude, but... I was talking to some Muslim men in Pakistan when we were there, and they were talking about how the Holy Prophet uh, cut his pubic hair the length of a grain of rice. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Really? You know, we're getting into that kind of minutia. So it isn't this simple faith, because often what exacerbates the four, five pillars is that Muslims want to live as much like Muhammad as possible. And of course, he was a man. And this is great for men. And so women, Linda will get into this, but men will try to emulate the life of Muhammad as much as they can uh, to the point where if you see a Muslim man many times, if he has a, a long beard and, and, and my Pakistani friends, when I was talking to them, Muslims would say, oh, he, he's a very, very fundamental Muslim. And this, this is how long his beard is. And so it was often uncut. Uh, because, you know, that's the way the Holy Prophet wore his beard. Or if you see a Muslim man in the community, he has like a red beard, a beard that's been dyed red. That means he's been on Hajj, which we're going to talk about, and that's pilgrimage to Mecca. And so there all these things. So it's really not this simple religion. And so let's uh, build on the basics. And we're going to begin today with uh, an introduction, and we're going to get into a brief intro of Islam. And we're going to be talking about the five W's and the five pillars of Islam this morning. So uh, let's go to, first of all, Islamic law and what it's based on. You have that on the slide before you. And here we see that the Quran, the Quran is the holy book of Islam. Uh, this is a Quran. It's a translation from Arabic into English by Abdullah Yusuf Ali. Now, this is one of the best translations into English. And I'm going to say something, and don't think I'm a heretic. But I would encourage you to get a copy of the Quran and by Abdul Yusuf Ali. It's a really good translation. Uh, I read through the Quran twice, and here's why. It becomes a tool, a bridge, to be able to share with a Muslim to read your holy book, the Bible. And you'll find that most Muslims have never read the Quran cover to cover. <laughs> So here is a, a Quran that you can. I would encourage you to read it because it can be a bridge. I've read my holy book 
would you consider reading mine? And so it's a great bridge. And you'll see in some conversations that I have, I'm going to share with you later how that works out. So they believe that Muhammad was delivered this by the angel Gabriel that is recited to him. They believe that Muhammad was an illiterate man and part of the miracle of Islam is that Muhammad was illiterate, but yet here is this holy book they consider to be the holiest of the holy books, and that's the Quran. And then there's the Hadith, and I mentioned earlier about how Muslims, men in particular, or women dress. A lot of this is not from the Quran, but this is from the Hadith. And the Hadith are like the 30,000 sayings of Muhammad. Now, they kind of break them into classifications A, B, and C. A, yes, we know that Muhammad said this. B, ah, we're pretty sure he said this. And C, eh, we really don't know, but we're going to include it anyway. And you'll find that Muslims who are very strict about their faith aren't so much strict about what they know in the Quran, but it's what they have picked up and read in the Hadith from the sayings of the Prophet because that's really instruction about how to live your life as a Muslim. The Quran talks very little about how to live your life. Like our scriptures talk a lot about how to live out your Christian faith. The Quran doesn't do that so much. But the Hadith, that's where Muslims pick up that which they manifest in their lives. And then there's the Sharia, and that's the code of law resulting from the work of Muslim scholars in the early centuries. And so you hear about the Sharia and Sharia law. Uh, This isn't something that grew out of the Quran directly, but it's been the work of scholars over the years. And different countries apply it in different ways. I mean, they still have beheadings, and they still have cutting off of hands in Saudi Arabia. We didn't see that in Pakistan, though Pakistan is one of the most fundamental Muslim countries in the world. You certainly don't see it in a place like Turkey. So it can fluctuate and so forth. And some people say, Mark, do you think we'll have Sharia in America? No, I don't, because I, never think that, I don't think the Muslim population will ever reach the size where it could definitely change law and so forth in this country. Though in places like England, where they are a majority, you do see them trying to change the local laws to try to bend it their way. So if they become a a massive population or a significant population in a certain place, that possibly could happen in a local way, but nothing to the extent of cutting off of hands and heads and things such as that. So let's talk about what. Uh, Islam is a monotheistic, works-based religion. Monotheistic means one God. They are so heavy into the tawid, which means the one, the oneness of God. And that often leads them into the problem they have with us believing that we have multiple gods, Father, Son, and Mary. They have no concept of the Holy Spirit. But they often think the place that the church has put in history upon Mary, that it's the Father, Son, and Mary, so that we have three gods and not one. But of course, we know that God is one in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the dynamic of that is important to understand, but also to understand that it's a works based religion. Muslims never have any assurance, even if they've lived a wonderful, committed Muslim life. We've known Muslims like this in Pakistan, that they are going to heaven. There's never any assurance whatsoever. They'll say, inshallah, if God wills, perhaps we'll make it to heaven. And so they will do their best to do all that Islam prescribes so that they could have a chance of getting in And in their minds, there's like a scale, and hopefully their good works will outweigh their bad works, and they'll be allowed into paradise at some point. So who are Muslims? Muslims are followers of Islam, 
that Islam's message is, and that Islam's message is for everyone. So understand this, the Muslim is the person who believes in the faith like we are Christians. But Islam is the religion that follows. So the word Islam means submission. It doesn't mean peace. It means submission. And the word Muslim literally means one who submits. To what? To the will of Allah. So obeying God's will to the Muslim is the most important thing in life. So if you have a Muslim friend and you often hear them say, inshallah, they're saying, if God wills, if God wills, because God is sovereign. Uh, God already knows what's going to happen today. He's in control. They're very much like Calvinists in some way in Christian circles as well, where God has predestined everything. So Muslims are the followers of Islam who believes that Islam's message is for everyone. And here's an interesting thing. Do you know that Muslims believe that all of us here were born Muslims? All of us here were born Muslims. But along the way, the family we're born into, the country that we're born into, where our history has taken us to the point of being born determined where we landed and so forth. So you're a Christian, but it's only because somewhere along the line, somebody strayed from the path. So we're all born. So when a person who is not a Muslim becomes a Muslim, they do not say they converted to Islam, but that they are a revert. So you were a Muslim when you were born, you strayed away, and now you reverted back to Islam. So there's this understanding that Allah has everyone born as a Muslim. It's important to understand that you do not worship Muhammad. Muhammad is not a deity. Though I've run into a lot of Muslims, especially when we were living in England studying language, that the way they were talking about him was like I was talking about Jesus. And I actually heard a Muslim say one time, you can say anything you want to say about Allah, God, but never say anything against the Prophet Muhammad. That's pretty de if, deatific, or is that a word? Deatific to me. It's, it's, it's deifying Muhammad in a way of putting him even above God. And so they, again, try to follow his way of life as precisely as possible. So history is important. Everything has a historic context, and that's why it's important for us to know history. So let's talk about that. When did Islam begin? Well, Muhammad was born around 610 AD, and they believe that Excuse me, he wasn't born in 610 A.D., but he was born in the 6th century. But around 610 A.D., Muhammad was a man who was searching. And here is my opinion, and what I've read about him, is that he was a camel caravan owner. It's like he worked for Prime Trucking or Schneider Freight, you know, only on camels. And they would go throughout the Arabian Desert. They even went into the Middle East as to what's now today Jordan and so forth. And he was in contact with Christians and Jews. And at that time in the Middle East, there were a lot of Christian monasteries along the Persian Gulf and along the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. And so he had contact. He had a lot of questions because he was spiritually searching. And so he picked up different belief systems from Jews and from Christians and also Zoroastrians who believe in the balance of and inequality between good and evil. And through this, I believe that the enemy, because here's the sad thing. The earliest translation of the Bible into Arabic from Hebrew and Greek was in the ninth century. That's the earliest translation of an Arabic Bible. And we're talking about Muhammad 300 years earlier. So the Arab people did not have a Bible translation in their language to go to. 
And this is even sadder because in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, there are 15 people groups, 15 places that people are mentioned where they came from. And guess what the last people group were that heard the wonders of God declared to them in their own language was from? They're the Arabs. The Arabs were present on the day of Pentecost and heard the wonders of God in their own language, but nobody translated the Bible into Arabic that we know of until approximately the 9th century, 300 years after Muhammad. So he has these beliefs, but he has no text of scripture to go to to see if his beliefs are correct because the Bible is the final authority on our belief system. If it's not in the text, we don't believe it. If it is in the text, we do. So he had a skewed Christology, meaning understanding about Jesus and so forth. But Muslims then, when he believed, they believed he received the Quran from the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel recited to him what became the Quran over a 40-year period, that he then was given the most authentic word of God from Allah that made everything else pale. And we'll talk about some other beliefs when it comes to scriptures in the Old Testament, New Testament, and so forth. So let's talk about where Muhammad came from. He came from what's now Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Almost 50 nations in the world today, out of approximately 220, are majority Muslim countries. And today, it's the world's second largest religion, yet it is the fastest growing religion. And it is primarily not through conversion, but it's primarily through birth rate and marriage. Those are the two key reasons for growth in the Islamic world today. For instance, if a Christian woman marries a Muslim man, and he is a very faithful, dedicated Muslim man, though she is Christian and she can remain a Christian, or Muslim men can marry a Jew, but they can't marry outside of a woman being a Muslim, a Jew, or a Christian. The children are to all be raised Islamic. They're all to be raised as Muslims. So that exacerbates the growth as well. Now, there are numbers of Muslims in the world today that have become very secularized, and they do not hold to that. I was sharing um, one time uh, with uh, a woman on a plane. I was flying from Chicago, excuse me, I flew from Chicago, but to Washington, D.C., on to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and I got bumped up to business class. Nice perk. And so I got bumped up, and I sit down, and this young woman sitting next to me, and eventually we start talking, and as we flew on and we got deeper into conversation, uh, she told me that she was Jewish and that her husband was from a, a Muslim background. I said, oh, that's very interesting. And she said, yeah, we have a, a boy, and um, you know, my, my husband's not a practicing Muslim, and, and I'm not a, a practicing Jew, and you know what, we don't want our son to become either a Muslim or to practice the Jewish faith. What do you think? And I said, well, have you ever considered the claims of Jesus Christ? And she says, no, we haven't. I said, well, you know, Jesus was a Jew. Um, Muslims see Jesus as the second greatest prophet to Muhammad. I said, you know, you ought to go to the Bible and you need to read the Gospels, beginning with the Gospel of John, and you need to consider the claims of Jesus Christ because I think this would be a wonderful way to raise your son. And you know what? It would be great for you and your husband as well. <laughs> Talk about divine appointments even sitting on a plane, but we both were a captive audience sitting there flying from Washington to Dubai. 
And so Islam is the second largest religion in the world and growing. Some say, Pew Charitable Trust says in their statistics, that Islam possibly could become the largest religion in the world by 2050 to 2060. Need not fear. Read the book of Revelation. We know the end. But here's the clarion call to the church. Churches like Belmont Assemblies of God. And I think the Assemblies of God should be leading the way more than any other group because of our theology of the Holy Spirit, of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I'll be preaching about that tomorrow morning, uh, about our impact as witnesses uh, from Acts 3 and 4. But just down the street west of here, you have the Islamic Center. That used to be Good Shepherd Assembly of God, and little did I know until this morning that this church has roots in that church because this church split off in that church, but that used to be Good Shepherd Assembly of God. I had a deacon one time, I was at a graduation party, and he said to me, Mark, what would you think about an Assemblies of God church becoming a mosque? I said, I think it'd be terrible. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, I'm a deacon and Good Shepherd, and we have to sell our building to Muslims. I said, what do you mean you have to? He said, in the city of Chicago, if someone agrees to your asking price or more, you cannot deny them purchase. So they had the money for that building and they paid for it. So they had to sell it. If you go out to Wheaton, First Assembly of God in Wheaton, Illinois, Wheaton, Illinois, is now the Wheaton Islamic Center. Because they got in financial trouble. And the bank took it and the bank sold it. So this is important to understand. So the Muslim community, though, sees itself very, very tight. And it's called the Ummah. The Ummah is very important. So we talk about the why now. The heart and strength of Islam's existence beats through the Ummah, or community. They are not individualists. Like, our culture has made our identity as Christians very much individualistic. Most of the Christian world that is not in the West does not think this way. It's very communal oriented. So that's why when Linda gets into hospitality, it's vitally important to understand how important the sense of community is mixed with hospitality as well. So in your friendships with Muslims, you'll experience wonderful aspects of community. When we lived in Pakistan as missionaries, there we started Teen Challenge Pakistan and we planted two other churches. We didn't hide the Jesus factor in starting Teen Challenge. I remember one time I went to the ministry of anti-narcotics and the head of the ministry, the minister himself, the big guy, the guy with the biggest desk on the very top floor, wanted to talk to me. And the first question he asked me, he said, Mark, in this Teen Challenge, because I didn't hide the Jesus factor, because Teen Challenge fails without Christ being at the center. So we didn't hide the Jesus factor. And he said to me, let me ask you a question. He goes, with Muslims that come into this drug rehab program, are you going to proselytize them? Proselytizing means switching from one religion to another. I said, no, sir, we are not going to proselytize. We are going to evangelize them. <laughs> and he said, evangelize, what does this mean? I said, I said, it means we're going to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ, that he alone can set them free. And he goes, oh, Dr. Mark, this is a wonderful program. <laughs> I was like, you know, and I didn't say anything more. It's like, great, as long as you're on board with me, here we go. But this Uma dynamic is so important. So when you meet a Muslim, understand he, is, he or she is very tied to this community dynamic. And so making your way into their life cannot be just a one-off. You have to think long-term. When they start showing interest in a friendship, chances are they're going to start inviting you into their home. They're going to invite you over for dinner. You need to be doing the same thing. I don't want to get off on that. Linda will talk about that. But the thing is, think long-term. Don't be a Christian existentialist from the West. Meaning, okay, 
I click that one off. I talk to Muhammad about Jesus and off we go to somebody else. Be willing and be ready to invest time into the relationship. This is very biblical. Don't let our culture rule. Yes, Linda. I just point out here to this point, because, um, because everything is so, you know, it's collective culture, it's communal. Here's, here's the beautiful thing, is that when you make a Muslim friend, pretty soon you're going to be meeting that Muslim friend's uh, family. And then, and then she's going to introduce you to her friends and her community. And you will find yourself having more Muslim friends than you ever thought that you would, simply because you reached out to one woman. And you know how beautiful it would be and how necessary is it that we, the church here, you know, become that community that you get to introduce her to. Like, you know, exchanging this community uh, sort of hospitality piece. I mean, the door, the, the Lord opens the doors pretty wide when we start sharing our faith with Muslims. And, you know, it's not that it makes it easy because it's wide, but the opportunity's there and Muslims are reachable. Good point, Linda. Thank you. So this Ummah dynamic is very important. It's, it's very tight. So understand that. If... So, I mean, <laughs> you guys know what Juma is in Arabic? Do you know what that means, Juma? Well, Juma is the word for Friday. And what happens on Friday? What do Muslims do on Friday? They go to their, that's the day they go to mosque. Around noon, they go to mosque. And if you have seen, you've all seen pictures. I mean, they sh I mean, we'll see them now a lot because of the conflict that's happening. But when they pray, men in their section and women in their section, sometimes women are in a completely different room, but it is, it is shoulder to shoulder and ankle to ankle. Like they pray, touching. The, the intention is that this line not be broken, that this community be strong, and they pray together this way, right? That's that's the importance of this ummah that that we get to see Muslims practice on Juma, their day of worship. Okay, so think about our community and how we get to um, invite them into the family of God. That's the best community ever. Even that positioning in the mosque, when especially the men stand shoulder to shoulder, because usually women are kept separate, but it communicates the oneness. Oneness, again, is very important. So it's a communal oneness. So even if there, I've been in many, many mosques all over the world, and they do this globally. This happens everywhere. It's very consistent. So if someone's sitting in the back by themselves, and there's a space, they'll say, come come. So everybody goes to the front and stands shoulder to shoulder. And I've got to say, as Christians, I take groups and other missionaries to mosques and so forth. We're sitting in the back and they welcome us into the mosque. Is that you watch and you see that it's very moving. It's very moving. It's like, boy, this sense of community, this sense of oneness, the sense of we're all on the same page. It's very, very, very moving. And so this idea of oneness uh, with uh, each uh, communicates that oneness Allah as well. So we need to move ahead with our time and let's move ahead to the six beliefs, the Iman as it's called, I-M-A-N. <clears throat> and so the first thing we want to talk about is that the religion of Islam has two main components, the Iman, which are the beliefs of Islam. We're going to talk about those five pillars. We're not going to get into the minutia of the Hadith, but the five pillars of Islam, because this is what Muslims you meet will base their discussions with you about. So then also the Deen, the D-E-E-N, 
which are the duties, the carrying out of the belief system as well. So for us, it would be your faith and your works. So in essence, it's that from a Christian perspective. And so there are six beliefs, and in the Iman are the beliefs of Allah, which is God. We've already talked about God, you know, the oneness of God, who is very transcendent. Uh, he is not really knowable. Muslims say, oh, Allah is as close as your jugular vein. But they can't have a personal relationship with God. That's why God had to send Gabriel to speak to Muhammad and to, so, and to recite. As a matter of fact, the word Quran, Quran, means recitation because it was recited to Muhammad. And then there are angels, which include the jinn, which are like demonic spirits and Satan. There are the books. Angels are Allah's messengers. And actually the word angelos in Greek does mean messenger. So we believe in that dynamic of angels are messengers of God. That they praise God. We see that in scripture, the cherubim and the seraphim. Sure, we could agree with that. They carry Allah's throne, which I'm think, thinking if, if there are no anthropomorphic, if there are no physical dynamics to Allah, then why would he need a throne? Um, you don't need to get it at the beginning. Um, let me just say this. Um, the word Allah, let's just slip back to Allah for a minute. Many times Muslims will say to you that we worship the same God. Let me say, first of all, um, I used to think that before I had growing experience from reading the Quran and then also sharing the gospel with Muslim peoples in Pakistan. I began to realize as I read the Quran, wait a minute, it's the context of the holy book that defines what the words mean. Example, for Mormons, the Book of Mormon and their other extra biblical book called Doctrines and Covenants, Talk about Jesus. Do the Jesus, is the Jesus that the Mormons believe in the same Jesus of the New Testament? Absolutely not. Is the Jesus that Jehovah's Witness follow the same Jesus from their book, the New World Translation? Is that Jesus the same Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It is not. To Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is an angel. So the context determines the meaning of the word. Now, Tomorrow, when my brothers and sisters in Jordan, in Egypt, and other Middle Eastern countries go to church, they're going to hear the name Allah, 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 over and over again from the Bible. Now, the context of the word Allah in the Bible means the God that you and I worship as well. So it's just an Arabic word. But when a Muslim says we worship the same God, we do not. Because the Allah of the Quran is nothing like the Allah of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So understand that. Now, when your Muslim friend or acquaintance says to you, we worship the same God, don't bolt out, no, we don't. No, you know, you don't want to put bricks in the wall. Just roll with it. You don't have to share all nine yards of your belief system in one setting. You want to build relationship. And then as the relationship goes forward, you'll be able to introduce the scriptures. And once you start getting a Muslim reading the Bible, the Bible is the only inspired book on the planet. And the word begins to speak to them. And then when you begin to pray with them and God begins to answer prayer and they begin to see the power of God because Muslims are looking for power. And Islam is a powerless religion. It's founded by Satan. Satan's a counterfeiter. He has no power. Christ's power always trumps Satan's power. So the word, prayer. So these angels, 
are important. Then let's go to the jinn. And again, the jinn are like demonic spirits. Uh, there are jinn who can marry <laughs> and have children. Muhammad even said that there were some jinn who received his message and became Muslims. They can disappear and come in other forms. But then there are other jinn that are destined for hell. And we're going to move quickly through that because you can read more about that with the resources that we give you. Let's move ahead then to the books. Uh, let's make this fast. The books, I talked about the Quran. The Quran is the holy book of Islam and the number one book, but Muslims also believe that the Torah, the first five books of Moses are the word of God. They believe that the Psalms of David are the word of God. They believe that the gospel not gospels, but the gospel of Jesus is the word of God. And they attribute other authors in scripture to books as well. But they believe this, that any place in the Old Testament, the Torah and the Psalms, or in the gospels that disagree with the teachings of Islam, that that is not the word of God. That's where Jews and Christians changed the Bible. So where the Bible agrees with the Quran, they would say, yes, that was God's original revelation to the prophet that wrote it, to Moses, to David, to Jesus. Where it disagrees is not. It's where Jews and Christians changed it over time. It's important to remember that uh, when you talk to a Muslim. So they, again, believe in our holy books, but they believe that any place that they differ is not the word of God. We're going to move ahead. There are many people in the scriptures that they believe are also, such as I mentioned Moses and da da I mentioned Abraham and David and Jesus, but also Moses and Aaron, uh, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, John the Baptist. Believe they believe that they were all characters in the Bible. So let's move ahead. Um, hell, yes. Um, about about these, about these prophets, you know, we're just trying to kind of squeeze it in. About all of these prophets, I mean, the thing that we've got to realize is that Muslims believe that they were all Muslim prophets, that Jesus was a Muslim prophet. Remember, everybody's born Muslim. Even though the Quran came to us starting in 610, um, Allah created. He's the creator, and he created Adam and Eve in the garden. So that's why all of those Old Testament texts are relevant to them and you'll find that the, the Quran has stories that are like ours although twisted there's not one of them that's exactly the same but they do consider that the you know the characters that that we read about in our bible some of them prophets and some of them just old testament um you know figures that we know about that we know a whole lot about who read who who were authored part of part of our holy book um they believe that they were all muslim they were, and, and we Christians, like Mark said, have um, have changed the text. So, but but I, I mean, I care. I remember when it hit me that wow, Muslims believe that Jesus was a Muslim. So, even though I can tell you this, it's it's so cool because in that area of oh, well, they believe in Jesus and they don't really know the truth. When you want to talk about the things of Jesus, because they have such a strong regard for Jesus, they're all ears. If you want to pray in the name of Jesus, there are, they're all ears, right? So, so, but just know the difference. I mean, it's not like their Jesus is your Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's again, all part of Satan's counterfeit. Right, in the Quran, Jesus is called Esau. And so uh, the Esau, the Jesus of the Quran, which he's mentioned is not the same Jesus of the gospel. So, Let's understand that. But again, this isn't where you come out of the blocks when Muslims say we worship the same God and all that. Don't 
look to be combative. You're looking to build relationship and to love them and to, over time, communicate truth, to get them into the scriptures and so forth. And I'll talk a bit about that as we go. So, again, continuing, we're going to wrap up these belief systems with the Iman, and we're going to talk a bit about hell. Um, hell is the place for bad Muslims and for kafirs, uh, which were considered kafirs were unbelievers. Um, and so that's what hell is for. Uh, it's also a place for the jinn, for the demon, demonic spirits, and for Satan uh, for all eternity. Uh, then there's paradise, um, which is their idea of heaven, but their heaven is very different <laughs> than our heaven or paradise. I mean, it's uh, rivers flowing with wine. It's really a great place for men because uh, it's full of beautiful women that are yours. Um, it's full of milk and honey. It's uh, halal meat, meaning no pork, and all kinds of fruits and beautiful places, wonderful clothes, unending sensual pleasure for men. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a man's Shangri-La and delight. Um, I remember asking one of my Urdu teachers, Urdu was a language we learned in Pakistan, and I said to her, Mrs. Rabina, I said, Mrs. Rabina, what is heaven for a woman in Islam? She goes, I have no clue. Maybe it's coming back as a man. <laughs> so, no. And so I said, well, I don't know. But never, ever, any Muslim woman I've spoken to in a relationship that I've had, like a friendship where you have that kind of freedom, no woman has ever told me what heaven is for her. Never. Never. So I don't know why women convert to Islam. I have no idea. It's got to be demonic deception. Or they're hungry for community. And here's where they beat us. My son is a captain of special ops in the army. When he was posted at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, he had a lot of, a lot of Mormon friends. And, and they just knew. He was a Christian. They didn't mess with him. He wasn't going to become a Mormon or anything, anything like that. But he said to me, he said, Dad, i got to tell you one thing. When it comes to community, Mormons have the assemblies of God beat hand down. They really know how to do community. And that's what makes them tight. So you see these cultic type groups, they're big in community. That should speak to us why community should be important to us. That's why the scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So you just don't go to church online. That's not a scapegoat. You should be with the body of Christ, present and accounted for. All right, now I'm going to preach. So, after paradise then comes fate. And online's good if you're sick. I've had that experience. Fate. There's a real fatalistic, the whole inshallah, anything could happen. God could will anything. I could walk across the street. The dynamic is, I could walk across the street and not look both ways because if it's Allah's will, I'll be able to walk both ways though it's traffic jam. Or if it's God's will that I die, there could be no traffic, but a car would hit me and kill me. So, this whole idea of fate, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I won't get a chance when I'm talking. So how many Spanish speakers do we have here? So, you know, Islam, I mean, Islam has a lot of, Islam and, and, Christ, and, and how can I say, the, the Latin culture, Muslims will tell you that you're the same because, um, because Latinos, you know, we all came from Spain. I, I shouldn't include myself, although, I mean, I grew up in Latin America. So, so um, you know, you, you were, we were all at one time in Spain. This is our madre patria. You know, this is our motherland. And Spain was controlled by Islam for a good, like, almost 800 years. When Columbus sailed the ocean blue, I mean, that was the day that the last Moroccans, the last Muslims were expelled from Morocco, right? Okay, so, you know, you, this is a plug. 
this is why we're, we're going to really excited about our, our Spanish service tomorrow because Latinos, if you're Latino, Latina, you, there's just something about it. I mean, culturally, you just understand more if, if, you're, if you're really rooted in your own culture. And I can say it from personal experience. There are a lot of words in Spanish that come from the Arabic. So what does inshallah, if God wills, I'm giving you a big hint, what does that remind you of in Spanish? Casi, casi, pero no. Ojalá. Do you know that word? Ojalá. Like, what does it mean in Spanish? It's like, oh yeah, I really hope so. And probably yes, but maybe not. But I really don't know. But you know, and it's kind of that. And I even knew as a child, even growing up in the church in the Dominican Republic, that if I didn't say si Dios quiere after a plan that I made, I was kind of like, you know, impia, maybe. Um, you know, and I'm saying, you know, on the, on the, on the outs. So, so, so just to give you that plug right there, and there are lots of words that Muslims will use that are rooted in, in Hispanic culture. And I will say this, uh, Muslims in the West, I mean, the Islamic sort of proselyte, the proselytizing of, of, of Christians, they are zeroing in on Hispanics in the United States. The fastest growing group of converts to Islam is Latinas in the United States, females. And, and so, and you've got to know, I mean, Islam in Spanish is, it started out in Houston, it's multiplied, it's still in Texas, but it's a huge movement that Muslims are um, uh, involved with, and, you know, I mean, just wanting to outreach specifically making Latin Americans a specific target for their proselytizing projects. And the last count from statistics, we saw that quarter million uh, Hispanics have become Muslims in America. So that's very important to be aware about. Much like the nation of Islam and the black community, especially on the south side, Louis Farrakhan, all of that, that's sectarian Islam. Even Muslims see them as being a cult. <laughs> uh, but still, they get into the prisons and they do all kinds of things. They offer, boy, we need more time. Um, they offer, uh, when they go into, they send missionaries into Cook County Jail amongst the black population. And they say, listen, if you become a Muslim, we're going to change your name. So Willie Smith becomes Muhammad Smith. So when he goes back to his neighborhood, he gets out of jail. He's not the same guy that robbed the 7-Eleven. Then they offer him a job. You get out of jail, we're going to have work for you. You can start earning a living. And they're big on that kind of morality. And you're, you know, getting off of welfare. You're going you're to work for a living. And they come part of this ummah, right? For a lot of kids growing up, and 70-80% of the black community is from a single-parent home, no men around. I, know, I pastor in the black community. Uh, right in the heart of the South Side, West Inglewood, and we first came to Chicago. So this, I know this from living it in that community, just after we were married, two weeks after we were married. Um, so then they offer him this Uma, and they offer him a job. Third, we're going to give you a wife. Bring stability into his personal life. So those three things. So very, very evangelistic in that way. Very important. So we've talked about the imam. We've talked about the beliefs. Let's get into the deen. Let's talk about the pillars of the duties. And here are the five pillars. I'm going to stretch it out to six. And we're going to really move through this because Linda needs to get this microphone to carry on to give you some great pragmatics. And by the way, uh, for those that are in the Hispanic service, uh, when we were pastoring Maranatha Church, it was Maranatha Assembly God then, we planted two Hispanic churches, one Mexican, one Puerto Rican. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio. I thought, oh, they speak Spanish? Everybody's, oh, we had a great congregation. We had a growing church through evangelism. They always have one big Hispanic church, right? Or <laughs> if goes, I think you're going to have two churches on your hands. Like, what do you mean? She goes, you have Puerto Ricans, you have Mexicans. And I said, she goes, very different cultures, even some different Spanish. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. 
So anyway, we ended up planting two Hispanic churches. They would love when she would preach because they said, your Spanish is better than ours. So when you hear her speak tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, the pressure's not on, Linda. So let's talk about this. Five pillars. Let's go to the first one. These are foundational. Muslims believe if you follow these, if you live them out, then you have a good chance of making it to paradise. Doesn't mean you will. You may have to spend some time in a thing they call purgatory, a type of purgatory, but chances are you will. Yeah, in hell. And then eventually you'll get out of hell, get out of jail free card, and you enter into paradise if you practice these. So the first, I'm just going to move through these, is the Shahada. And that is the declaration of faith. There is no other God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They believe when you say that, that you become a Muslim. One day, I had a class of seminary students at the Islamic Center of Springfield in Springfield, Missouri. I've got a 13-year relationship with that mosque. And while we were there, the imam gets up to the microphone. He says, please, everyone, please be quiet. Uh, we have something very special today. We have a young woman who wants to embrace Islam. And so I want you to be quiet as she repeats the Shahada with me. Well, the women in my class were with the Muslim women behind a wall with a one-way mirror, one-way window, so there. And so he had the microphone, she had a microphone, and then the Imam said, now repeat after me, sister, uh, there is, in Arabic, there is no other God, there is no other God, and Muhammad is his prophet, and Muhammad is his prophet. And then the place went up like she had come to the altar to receive Jesus. So the ladies in the class, they told us later, they said to her, uh, wow, how did you come to this? The girl's name was Melody Church. <laughs> and she was a student at Missouri State University. She says, well, I went to a lot of churches, but I didn't feel welcome. I feel welcome here. Uma, community, belonging. We've got to nail this as a church. People are searching, and they'll find other religions to find community. We may say the answer is Jesus. But if the answer is Jesus and you don't feel community in the church, you don't feel like you're loved or wanted, people are going to go other places. And they'll go to other religions because they don't know better. So we've got to be conscious about this as the body of Christ. So you recite the creed and you, it's like making a profession of faith in Jesus. So I'm going to move through this, uh, go on to the next pillar, which is Salat. And that is prayer, praying five times a day uh, before the sun comes up, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, before sunset after the sun goes down. This is not unique to Islam. The Muslims really got this from the early church called the offices of prayer. And so they picked it up from Christians. But here's a clincher. Um, when a Muslim woman, so Muslim women aren't allowed to pray when they have their periods. So three weeks out of a month, they don't pray. They can't, they can't, they can't, they can't be in the presence of men in that state. It's very kind of, you know, what we read about, Old Testamentary. I mean, they're not, like, sent out away, but, um, but they have to, re re they, they're not, they don't pray. They don't go to mosque. And here's the thing. This prayer, this is, this is one of the five pillars. This is one of the ways that a Muslim knows if he or she is a very good Muslim. So Muslim women um, will... Um, there are some texts um, that say that she must make up that week. And there are others that say, no, her period, I mean, her not having to pray or go to the mosque is like Allah's grace that, okay, she doesn't feel good. She's, she's not feeling great, so she doesn't have to do that. But 
but there aren't too many Muslim women who don't feel like they're completely indebted, you know, on judgment day to the balance of those scales, like they have 25% chance less, like, like, than, than men do. And it's also based on a hadith. And this is a saying of the prophet and Muslim women know this. So there's a story and this is, it's written in story form. Um, and so the, the, the prophet is walking by, he's, he's on his way to the masala and um, there's a group of women and he stops and he says, oh, you women, you know, you need to give alms because you curse frequently. And, um, you know, just, I can't remember the exact words. You curse frequently and you, you need to give alms to make, make up for these bad deeds. And then he goes on to say um, that, uh, that, that, you know, he says, he says, you, you curse frequently, you're not good to your husbands, basically. And then he says, and because of the, and then he says, sorry, and then he says, I have looked into hell and I have seen that most of hell's inhabitants are women. Many men would be led astray by people like you. Like, you know, he says these things. And then he says, then the prophet, the ladies that he was talking to, they say, um, well, you know, uh, you know, holy prophet, um, what is it? Um, um, first of all, he says um, that your, they say, so what is it that makes hell, you know, um, mostly inhabited by women? And he says, because of the deficiency in your religion and the deficiency in your intelligence. So then the women ask him, sorry for bungling that up a little bit, um, but the women then asked him, so what's so deficient about our intelligence and what's so deficient about our religion? And he said that, well, isn't it true that the testimony of two women equal the testimony of one man in a court of law? This is Quranic. Yes, this is a fact. So the women all replied, yes, this is true. Well, this is the deficiency in your in your intellect and your intelligence. And then he says, and isn't it true that you can't pray during your menses? And the women said, well, yes, this is true. Well, this is the deficiency of your religion. And so the, the women, the women really, this is a real struggle of the soul. And this is also a, you know, a place where they feel super indebted um, to the balance of those good deed scales. And this is only one aspect of the whole Islamic um, sort of modesty, the segregation of women component, right? So, so, so that's why we have Say Hello Serving Muslim Women as a separate component of global initiative reaching Muslim people. So there are, we can't tell you all about it here today. But, you know, the, the segregation of women is based in the Quran, in the texts that tell women that they need to, they need to veil. There's, it's all about Islam's modesty code. Um, the prophet says that modesty is the character of Islam. It just so happens that the woman bears most of the weight of keeping that modesty system. Men are, are mandated to be modest too. And they're, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I, I just want you to know that this is where the rub women and men comes, okay? I wish I had, we had more time to share and I'm happy to say more one-on-one -on -one or if you wanted to communicate with us, but, but this is real, that the gender segregation in Islam is Quranic. Um, you might have friends nowadays here in the West who saying, no, 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 that's, you know, well, that was the Quran that was then and things are different and, you know, we've trans, you know, I mean, they're, there are many uh, Muslim feminists who are doing their dead level best to, um, to convince uh, Muslim communities, even here in the United States and in the West and places where there's greater freedom, that, you know, uh, that, that, that because of current times, we can interpret the, the Quran differently. But that comes in conflict with the whole dynamic where Muslims always know that the Quran can't be changeable and it's timeless. 
You know, so, I mean, there's just, there's this huge rub. And your Muslim friends here might not, might not um, totally, you know, walk in line with the kinds of things that we're talking to you about now. But we want to, we guarantee you, this is the core of Islamic belief and practice. Okay. So continue on with Salat prayer five times a day. Uh, some even add two other times, you know, the last time of prayer to the beginning time of prayer. Uh, there's a whole story about a Muslim woman that I know from Iran who came to Jesus about that. We don't have time for that. But I would like to go to the next slide, if you would. Uh, this is really interesting. Uh, Linda chose this picture. But this mosque is the first mosque I ever saw in my life, and I didn't know it was a mosque. My parents went to Lake Erie a lot for vacation, and this is on I-75 on the way to Toledo. And that's been there since I was a kid in the 60s. And so I believe there's a little uh, speaker there. We could play the call to prayer. So uh, you want to give it a try? Just punch on that, see if it works. It may not work. Okay, it doesn't work. So anyway, five times a day, the call to prayer blankets the Islamic world. And that's what Muslims are trying to even do here in the United States. There are some places where they have gotten permission from the local authorities to be able to do the call to prayer not too early and not too late but maybe the three in the middle they've been able to do like in Dearborn Michigan where they become the majority population by the way Henry Ford hated Jews he was an anti-semite and he instead of hiring Jews imported Shiite Lebanese people Muslims from Lebanon over to the United States so into his hometown so Dearborn is a majority population Muslim city today because of Henry Ford and his anti-Semitism. It's a fact. So, um, by Chevy, General Motors. Anyway, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, this, this prayer, it just constant, our house in Pakistan, we had mosques everywhere around us and just one after the other, five times a day. Yeah, they have loudspeakers, and, and often one guy that's calling to prayer, the muazin, tries to outdo the other guy, tries to outdo the other guy, tries to outdo the other guy. Okay, let's move ahead to zakat, which is almsgiving. I'm going to make this fast. It's 2% or 2.5% of one's salary uh, with my Muslim friends. After I got to know them well, I said, man, you Muslims get off easy. And they would say, what? I said, yeah, I mean, I, I, as Christians, we pay tithe. We give God tithe. We give him 10%. And then we give him beyond that in offerings. What? You give more than 10% of your income? I go, yeah, but you know what? God always increases that 90% or more. So, you know, our holy book says you can't outgive God. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and then there's the next one. It's fasting, which is called Rosa. And during the month of Ramadan, which is a month that Muslims believe that the angel Gabriel started reciting the Quran to Muhammad, they celebrate that month. It's about 30 days of fasting. It's fasting of food. It's fasting water. It's fasting uh, smoking cigarettes. It's fasting sex during the daylight hours. Uh, anything where anything could be ingested. Uh, they won't even bathe during the daylight hours because you might get some water in your mouth and swallow it, or you might get some water in your ear. So it's a very, very strict thing. But anyway, fasting is important to Muslims. And during the ninth month of Ramadan is when they celebrate the fasting uh, because of the Quran being given to Muhammad. Um, so let's move ahead to pilgrimage. Uh, and I'm going to wrap up with just this and one more thing uh, in light of what's happening in the world today. Uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, you see this black cube. That's called the Kaaba. That's the navel of Islam. When Muslims are bowing and praying, whether it's on the street or in the park or in the mosque, 
They are bowing in that direction of that. You see all these pilgrims, hundreds and millions of them that come to the Hajj. They're supposed to do at least once in their lifetime where they can then like, it's their holy land tour. So they'll go to Mecca, which is the heart of Islam. Then they'll also go to Medina, which is the burial place of the prophet Muhammad. They have a mosque there with his tomb. And when you say your prayers there, I mean, the more you pray in a mosque type setting, you increase the works orientation of getting into paradise. So yeah, you can pray in the park. You could pray in Millennium Park, but that's great. But if you pray at a mosque, it's even more so. If you go on Hajj, which they're supposed to fulfill this, the, the fifth pillar of Islam, that even means more. Anybody watch Johnny Quest? Yeah, right? Remember his little friend Haji? Okay, Haji was a Muslim because when you go to Mecca, you become a Haji. They give you that term. Okay, so I'm going to conclude with this and turn it over to Linda. Uh, let's talk about the possible sixth pillar. And there's no slide for this, but the sixth pillar of Islam, some Muslims say, is jihad. Now, we often think of jihad uh, as being like what happened on 9-11 or what Hamas is doing in Israel now that the Hamas... Uh, that terrorists that are supported by Iran, uh, that they are, are engaged in jihad. And so we see that jihad and we think that's the only meaning for the word. It means holy war. But actually, um, it's the lesser jihad. And then, and it's because it's supposed to be the least important. However, there's also the jihad of a community. And that's when a community together, like Belmont Assemblies of God, you want to strive together to do the will of God. The Ummah comes together and you want to struggle. And the word jihad means struggle. It doesn't mean war. It means struggle. And so as a community of believers, you want to work together and you want to accomplish God's will, Allah's will, as a community of people. Like this mosque, this Islamic center, their jihad would be, how do we reach this community with the message of Allah, the message of Muhammad, okay? And then, here is the greater jihad. And the greater jihad is the individual living out the will of God. There's some identification there, right, with us? Living out God's will. And I'm going to conclude with this anecdotal story. Because some Muslims see this as the sixth pillar. So, like I said, I go to the local mosque in Springfield. I always look, when I go to the mosque, I look for men that I haven't met before that I can build a relationship with, that I can share the gospel, especially university students because they go back. And my feeling is why they've come to America from a context like Saudi Arabia to the United States, this context of freedom, because we are so free here. I mean, we've been all over the world. This is the freest nation on the planet. Is because God's brought them here missiologically for us to reach them. We have a duty, not just missionaries, not just pastors, but we all have a duty to engage the unreached that are moving into our land. And there's no more Muslim people groups from all over the world that are represented 24-7, 365 days a week than Muslims in America. More than Hajj at Mecca, Saudi Arabia. We've got them 24-7. I could take you down Devon Avenue, 30 nations and 30 blocks. And we can engage all kinds of Muslims and Hindus and all different parts of the world. So 
I go to the mosque, I look around, I see this guy I've never seen before. So I walk up to him. You see, you've got to take the initiative. The Bible tells us in Luke 10:2, the harvest is ready, the workers are few. So the lost are not the problem. Lazy Christians are what the problem is. Christians that are distracted with life on this earth and not real kingdom motivation. This isn't it. We're all going to die. And the wood, hand, stubble, or the gold, silver, and precious stone is the end game. And a part of the gold, silver, and precious stone is engaging the lost with the gospel. It's not works orientation. It is obedience. That's why we're Pentecostal. Not just to babble in tongues because it helps our devotional life. We are filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole primary purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That endowment of power. So we go to a Muslim, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I go up to this man, I say, hey, I said, I've not met you before. Uh, my name's Mark, what's yours? Abdul Rahman. I said, oh, I said, uh, I've not seen you. Are you new? He goes, no, I've been here for three years. One of the times I've been in the mosque, I've never seen him. I said, oh, I said, where are you from? Saudi Arabia. What are you doing? I'm at Missouri State University finishing my master's in public administration. I said, wow, that's great. When do you go back? He goes, well, I graduate and I'll leave in three weeks. And I'm thinking, has any Christian engaged this man with the gospel? Because I believe he came from Saudi Arabia not just to get a master's degree. I believe God sent him here to hear about Jesus. So I said, hey, um, I'd like to get to know you more. See, it's all you got to do. It's all you got to do. Just like she says, say hello. All you got to do is just reach out. Just be friendly. Proverbs says, if you're friendly, you have many friends. I was told by kids, where we went in the world. Look, you want to have friends? Be friendly. If you don't want to have friends, don't be friendly. And they have a lot of friends. So I said, hey, could we get together? I'd just like to get to know you better. Sure. All right. We went to Panera, right across the street from Missouri State University. We get our food. I bought him lunch. We sit down, and he asked me a question I've never had a Muslim ask me before. He said, Mark. Mark, as a Christian, you believe that we have a sinful nature. And I said, that's right. And then I said, as a Muslim, and here's something for you to learn. As a Muslim, you believe we don't have a sinful nature. And he, he said, that's right, because Muslims don't believe we have a sinful nature. You can think anything you want. You want to kill somebody in your mind? You want to have sex with a man or woman in your head? Perfectly fine. It's okay. It's not part of your sinful nature. It's all right. You can do that. It's what you do physically. That's the sin. So I said, that's right. He said, Mark, why do you believe we have a sinful nature? I said, well, first of all, my holy book, the Bible says that, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that it began with Adam. We have a fallen nature. And I said, the second reason I believe it is because of toddlers. And, and this is all the spirit of God. I never thought about this before. I said, he said, what? I said, toddlers. You know what toddlers are? He said, yes, I know what a toddler is. I said, well, toddlers. He goes, well, they're children. How do you expect them to behave? I said, that's right, they are children. But why do they behave that way? They can do something adorable one minute, and the next minute they're throwing a train across the room and hitting somebody. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. Why do they behave that way? It's their fallen nature. It's already that fallenness within them that's behaving in ways that are not acceptable. Now, as they grow and do that, we expect them not to do that anymore. But that's their fallen nature. Then I said to him, and again, this is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says, will give you the words to say. We have to trust God in this. Because there is not a carte blanche, magic bullet way. Here's how to lead a Muslim to Jesus. You just got to get into the fight. If you stay out of the fight, nothing's going to happen. You got to get into the fight. And so he, he, I said, let me ask you a question, Abdul Rahman. 
do you do everything Allah says for you to do? And he looked at his food. He says, no, I don't. I'm ashamed to say it. And then I said, do you do things that Allah says he would not have you to do? He said, I'm ashamed to say I do things I know that Allah doesn't want me to do. I said, don't feel bad. I'm there with you. I said, one of our writers of our holy books named Paul, he said, I don't do the things that I should do. I do the things I know that I shouldn't do. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. I said, what you have going on inside of you is the greater jihad. And he said, what? You know about this? I said, yes. I said, there's the lesser jihad like on 9-11. I said, there's a community desire for jihad to struggle and fulfill the will of God. I said, but the greater jihad. I said, if you did not have a sinful nature, Abdul, then you would always do what God wanted you to do and you would never do what Allah didn't want you to do. Therefore, you are in this dilemma. You have the greater struggle because you have a fallen nature and you struggle to fulfill God's will like I do. He said to me, Mark, <laughs> again, to my very first point, have you read the Quran? I said, yes, I've read it cover to cover twice. He said, I'm ashamed of myself. This gets to me. <laughs> he says, I've been in America for three years and I've never read the Bible. And I thought, I didn't say it. I said, no, I'm ashamed that you've been here three years and a Christian in Springfield, Missouri has not built a relationship with you to give you a Bible. That's the shame. The harvest is ready. He's ready. But the workers are lazy. I don't want to get on the field. And what can God do for me? You know, just lavish it on me, Jesus, because I'm your kid. Come on. Man up, woman up. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what I did was I came prepared. I had an Arabic Bible with me. I pulled it out and I said, if you had a Bible, would you read it? He said, yes, I would. I said, I brought this for you. Didn't write in it. You don't write in it, you know, from Mark to Abdul Rahman. Or you just hand it to him pristine. He says, I'm taking this back to Saudi Arabia, and I'm going to read it. That's apostolic mission. Don't think going to Egypt or to Pakistan or Indonesia somehow is apostolic, and not being apostolic to reach Muslims in the city of Chicago isn't as apostolic. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. All four are happening at the same time. It's just as apostolic to do it here as it is to do it there. So that's what these times are for that we're gathered in. I need to turn it over to Linda, and I'll do that now. But this is what these times are for. It's just not information. You need to make it incarnate now. And here's how to do it through hospitality. A little bit. <laughs> he gets excited about a lot of things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, we, we always want to be ready to say yes if God calls us to Egypt or to Pakistan or wherever. But I've always felt like, why would I, I mean, how or why would the Lord call me to go there if I haven't even loved them here first, right? Um, and, and the thing is, and, and you know what, we're human and he's God and he does, honestly, he does. I'll, I'll share a testimony tomorrow about how he did that with me. I mean, I'm a, I'm an MK. I'll just tell you right now, I'm an MK. I grew up on the mission field, married my husband six years later. We moved into a neighborhood on the South side 
and I saw my first Muslim. She was my neighbor. She was covered from head to toe. And you know what I told Jesus right then and there? I mean, I, I had a wonderful life as an MK growing up. I was nurtured by an amazing national church. Raised me with my, my parents. I mean, it was just, I wouldn't trade my life for anything. Not that it wasn't, you know, different and hard sometimes, but I, I'm so grateful for the life that God gave me. But I told Jesus at that moment, I said, oh, Jesus, thank you for not calling me to that kind. No idea about who she was or what she believed or what she needed. At that point, we were about to church plant in that neighborhood and I totally missed it. Until one day, I'm in my backyard, Layla's in her backyard, she calls out my name and invites me in her, into her kitchen to spend some time with her. And I want you to know that the Lord used that friendship. We, we never saw Layla and Othman and their kids. We never saw them come to faith. But for years, we shared table. We shared conversation. We shared sorrow. We shared joy. And it was because of the fact that Layla had the nerve to say hello to me first, and God was merciful to me, that our hearts were open to the day when the missionary came to our church and said, you know, there's 20 million in the city of Pakistan, and there just aren't any of those people who know Jesus. Would you go? You know, small minority, 1%, you know, uh, and we were ready but it all started here in Chicago, irony of ironies, with my Muslim neighbor on Chicago's south side. So um, that's, you know, that's where Mark and I come from. And, um, you know, we've been so many times, I mean, so for so many years in context, Emily can testify to this. She's there for, for months at a time. I mean, you, it's, it's, that, it's just an overwhelming feeling to know that you are one of a handful of Christians and as far as you can see or even think of. Like, God, how on earth is this going to happen? And the thing is that Emily knows this too. You walk out of a situation like that and you love these people. You have some, they've become your best friends. I mean, if you live in a place long enough, you're going to have a lot of amazing friends that are Muslim. You know, they live in a place long enough. We can have, you know, some pretty amazing Muslim friends here in Chicago. And, um, but, but, you know, I always felt like, Wow, I mean, I just wish that, like, women in the church, like Sue in the Pew in the United States, I just wish she could see the opportunity that she has. Because if we were reaching out in our, in our, in our, in our nations, in our context where we are free to do so, and we are able to know the joy of reaching a Muslim, of, of leading a Muslim to Jesus, or even to getting part way with the Muslim, because every single encounter counts. It's like if we, um, you know, if we were to experience that joy, we'd have a boatload of open hearts that were ready to go wherever God called them. You know, I mean, we would not have a shortage of missionaries or pastors, or I, it would just be right, right? I mean, so Acts 17 verses. Um, 24 through 26. Maybe somebody open that up and let's just have it read real quickly. Pastor, I'm going to go over a little bit. Okay. Some, whenever you get it first. Acts 17 verses uh, 24 to 27. 27, yeah. And wherever you are, I'll give you the mic. Okay. Okay. 
Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Did you hear that word boundaries? He has, he, he's the one who puts us where he wants us when he wants us so that people who might seek him would indeed be able to find him. This is the Apostle Paul at the Areopagus talking to a very diverse group of super intelligent people and he's trying to show them that, you know, this statue here of the unknown God, that's, this is who God is. And he's put us all here at this place so that you who are seeking him might be able to find him because I, I can share him with you. That's, that's God's missio day. That's, that's how he wants us to do mission. And he's been doing it from the beginning of time. And we're going to talk about hospitality in that context right now. So, we told you that um, the, uh, yeah, thank you for putting that up there. It's, I, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm just going to go through this very quickly too. Um, if it's, we're called, um, uh, wait, it's the same, it, this is the same slideshow, somebody back there, but we're on the slide that says the character of Islam is modesty. We're going to start with that and then we're going to move into hospitality. Okay, so I mentioned a while ago that the character of Islam is modesty. Let's just, I just want to give you a little better groundwork so that you can know um, about some of the things that you might encounter in your friendships with Muslims. So, um, you know, um, sociologists have divided the globe up into sort of three major worldviews. And you've probably, you can probably remember, you know, the day you were in the eighth grade and you learned about these three worldviews, right? Guilt and innocence, fear and power, and shame and honor. In the West, we are more guilt and innocence. Like, if I break a law, if I commit a crime, I'm going to get punished for it, and I'm the loser, right? I'm, I'm the one who's going to prison, well, um, Islam and Christianity both were birthed into the worldview of shame and honor. Fear and power are, um, you know, you're motivated by um, powerful, yes, by fear, actually. Um, and it's, it's more of what happens in animistic cultures where people are always trying to appease the powers, especially the powers of the underworld. But um, I'm just skipping over to shame and honor to show you the difference. If you, if you are, if you have Hispanic background or Asian background, you'll really be able to identify with shame and honor too right so um in islam um honor is key like here here it is here's what here's here's how shame and honor cultures work they're they're based on community they're generally collective cultures where community is very important family is very important larger community is very important some of the cultures are very collective and um in islam no matter where it is, because it was birthed in this context and because it's texts instruct from that context. And, you know, that's the culture that your Muslim friends live in, even if they are in a guilt and honor sort of world. In Latin America, there was a huge mix, like shame, honor, um, shame, honor, and, um, and guilt, innocence. Um, but uh, here's what happens with shame and honor culture. Honor must be upheld at, you know, at all costs. And 
typically honor is reflected in what um, other people think of you and your community. Uh, and uh, shame, and honor is key, and shame is avoided at all costs. And here's the reason. Um, because in a collective culture, if you bring shame upon yourself, it's not only your shame, it becomes the shame of your community, right? Um, if you bring honor upon yourself or if someone honors you for some reason, my goodness, your whole family, your whole, your whole community is honored in that way. And everybody's goal is honor, right? Um, so, and it's, it's, honor is super, super important and shame, you're going to avoid it at all costs, especially in fundamentalist Muslim contexts. So, you know, when you hear about honor killings and the like, this is where this comes from. So in, in Islam, especially people are going to try to avoid it. They're going to hide it if they can't avoid it. And if they can't hide it, they will expunge it, like eliminate it or avenge it right? And that's the context of this shame and honor culture where modesty is the character of Islam and where Allah has mandated that women, what it winds up being is sort of bear the burden of keeping that modesty paradigm or honor, if something happens to a young girl, it's because she's been misbehaving and, um, you know, uh, hasn't been wearing her veil properly. I mean, it was that strict where we lived. When we first got to Pakistan, my good friend then and now colleague at Global Initiative, she handed me a veil. It was a dupatta. And um, she said, here it is right here. And she said, Linda, this is your modesty cloth. Don't leave home without it. And I mean, I, I learned about that right away. So my modesty cloth in Pakistan looked like this. The reasons the edicts for veiling are Quranic. There are three specific ones in the Quran. And the last edict for veiling came from Allah for the sake of the prophet um, because this is what happened. So the prophet is in Medina and he has some female followers in Medina. And at that time, you know, the female, Muslims didn't veil until this point, right? Like Muslims haven't veiled. I mean, you know, veiling's been around for a long time. The Islamic veil began with Muhammad, but Muslims weren't veiling yet. So these women um, who are following the prophet, they were, um, you know, out and about doing life and um, they were being molested publicly in the streets. Like they were, uh, the, you know, it was a very, it was a very, um, uh, uh, sensual culture and men would do things to women in the streets publicly and so the women were feeling very um, violated and so they went to the prophet and they told him their problem this is all recorded in the hadith and so the prophet 
calls the men in, right? And the men come in, and they're men from the community, and they're guilty. And he's asking them, well, why do you do this to our women, like our Muslim women? And the men say, well, <laughs> we thought that they were slaves. Like, we don't really have a way to distinguish between Muslim and non-Muslim. So then Allah provides the edict that Muslim women should veil and not be molested thereof, right? So that's how they were to be distinguished. So it can be viewed in two ways. It's her protection, but it also becomes the protection of her entire community because if she, if she doesn't follow these modesty edicts the way she's supposed to, then she could bring great shame upon the family. I'm going to tell you a very quick story. So a few weeks into our being in Pakistan, I went outside my backyard, and I hang some, some clothes up on the line. There's no yard, really. It's just a slab of concrete, and there's a house in back of us, and there's a lady who comes back on the balcony, and she's wailing. And I don't speak Urdu, and I don't know what to do. I mean, she's wailing. So in English, I just said, can I help you? And in perfect English, she responded, no, thank you, but I'm sorry. I'm just grieving the death of my daughter. And I think it was one of the days when Muslims are supposed to grieve for a death because the, 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 the death hadn't happened just right then. But she says, you know, I'm grieving for my daughter. And I learned more over the next few days that her daughter was like 22. She had gone to visit a friend in the neighborhood. I, I didn't learn this from her. I learned it from a daughter, I think it was. But um, uh, she had gone to visit a friend in the neighborhood. And when she got there and she was allowed into the house, the friend wasn't there, but the father was. And he was inebriated. This is, you know, alcohol is haram in Islam. He was inebriated and he had his way with her, sent her back home. So later on, her parents are ready to arrange a marriage for her, and they're, you know, bringing it up to her, and, she's, and she has to tell her parents what happened. Well, her parents did a very courageous thing. They did not, they did not hide it. They went to the police, and they registered a complaint, which was super courageous. Most people would have sent her away to a family someplace else, let her, you know, whatever, um, get past the time where they knew she wasn't pregnant, that sort of thing. I mean, there, you know, you hide those kinds of things. So, um, so they registered a complaint. It turns out that the guy who, um, who, had, um, who had hurt her, he was super powerful. He was ex-military. He was able to shame the family and community. He did it. He used newspapers, media, gossip. And the family was so desperately shamed that the daughter set herself on fire to spare her parents the shame. She expunged it, right? The thing is that everybody in Pakistan knows that when someone sets themselves on a fire, also it's a means of protest. And so in their minds, they say, ah, there's been an injustice. And that's the way she decided that she had to go. And this was upper middle class Muslim in the country where I lived. This happens here in the United States. This happens all over the place. Not so much, right, outside of Muslim countries. But in Muslim countries, these things still happen. This is the burden of this, you know, uh, we have, uh, there's, there's one author that says that, that Islam's women are the, cons the custodians of their community's honor. And that's why it's so important for us to know the bottom line. Like, it's always best to err on the side of 
being conservative about something. You know, don't assume that you have these freedoms, that your Muslim friend should have these freedoms too, and then you kind of botch it with them. So start from ground zero, the things that we're telling you about Islam. And then ask your, ask your friends questions. Like if we're going to get together, um, you know, and you don't really know how to act when you're supposed to be around her, her, you know, her male family members or whatever, just ask her, how should, you know, what are the expectations? How, I want to, you know, I, I want to be a good guest. Just, you, you ask each other these things and they'll be asking you the same kinds of things. So um, uh, it's, it's just very important though that you understand you're, you'll run into the gamut here. Like it'll be, it'll be super conservative to like super liberal and secular and where everything goes and doesn't matter, okay? You guys need to, this is in Chicago, you guys need to look up mipsters, Muslim hipsters online. You can look up, you can look up, um, Okay, uh, how many of you have watched Disney's late um, sort of Ms. Marvel? Did you watch that where Kamala Khan, she was the, she was the protagonist? <laughs> Kamala Khan is the product of, okay, so, uh, we're taping this. Um, Willow Wilson is an author. She is a, a girl who um, became a Muslim here in the United States. She's white American and she's got a very loud voice in, in um this whole Islam thing. So she, she, um, she was here in America and she um, um, became a Muslim and she decided that she wanted to go to Egypt to you know, learn more. She wrote a book called The Butterfly Mosque. Ladies, write this down. It's Butterfly Mosque. And um, I read that book and I, <laughs> I wept through it. I mean, because she... If she had been a Christian, she would have been the best missionary on the planet. The way she communicated cross-culturally, the way that she approached people in Egypt. I mean, it was everything that we're taught and we're learn, we learn as missionaries when we go overseas. Fell in love with a guy, they got married, and now she lives in the States. So she wrote the book, Butterfly Mosque, and um, also, I think she lives here in the States, the latest. And she was also approached about um, writing the comics. And so Kamala Khan was actually the um, Marvel Comics superhero for two years, like 14 and 15, 2014 and 15. So she's this Pakistani girl who comes to the United States and realizes that she has superpowers. But the comics and the movie, if you've seen it, you know that it features sort of the dynamics of her culture and um, things that she needed to get through. Like remember, she had this really good friend who was a guy totally not allowable in a Muslim country. But she had this friend here. So her parents were kind of troubled by that. Um, she had an older brother who was a very, um, we called him um, a, a fundy, like super fundamental. Uh, he's a fundamentalist and he was like watching his sister all the time and reporting what she was doing. And he was like a huge frustration for her. But in the, in the movie, you see how much she loves him. I mean, all of these things, this sort of Islamic agenda has become part of our Hollywood <laughs> programs. You know, I mean, it's just, it's become, it's become part of woke culture. It's just, it's, it's everywhere, friends. So, but, but we want you to know that the core of Islam, the core of what, um, what is being promulgated is, is, is one of Satan's craftiest counterfeit um, concoctions, right? And that's the religion of Islam. So don't, but be aware. And some of these things are, are just pretty, okay, butterfly mosque. Guys, you gotta, you gotta look up mipsters. Um, okay, and then there's another gal. Oh, this is, this has blown me away. 
Her name is Mona Hyder. I think this is the way she spells her name, Mona Hyder. She actually got a master's degree, and I think it was here in Chicago, at a liberal, she has her MDiv. Um, she wanted to, she's learning about religions, and she wanted to know about Christianity, so she got an, an MDiv here in the United States. And she actually is featured on PBS with her convert husband, and they're calling, um, they call it their um, Route 66, an, an Islamic sort of track. And uh, it, it's, it is delightful to watch, actually. But you see the Islamic agenda in it. And you see it done very tastefully. And you really, really like her. Like, you really like, I'd, I'd love to know her. You'd really like her. Um, she does some very repulsive things, things that she'd be dead for if she did them in, you know, Pakistan or Jordan or any of these countries. I mean, even, even in not-so-conservative culture. Um, she has some music videos that, I mean, she's, she has one where it's called, um, it's called Wrap My Hijab. So it's all about wearing the veil and the freedom that she has to wear the veil. So Muslim feminist women will, you know, now they're, 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 they're about the freedom of veiling. And so um, it's a video, though, that is um, very sensual. So she's very pregnant in this video, and she's rubbing her tummy. And here in the West, we think, well, that's very maternal and very sweet. When in fact, in a Muslim culture, she would never do that. That's like, you're not even, if, when you're pregnant, you don't even go out after the first, you know, few weeks of your pregnancy. So I just, I, I want you to know that what we're teaching you is what you need to know. This is what Islam is. But I was also want you to know that you could see anything or everything, something that's much different from what we're telling you here. This is what it's anchored in. And the lie of Islam is still the lie of Islam, even if it's super, um, even if it's super progressive in a way that draws you in and you become a Muslim, you're still the lie of Islam. I mean, it's, you're still lost. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, the enemy wears a lot of faces and Muslims wear a lot of faces. But you know what? Muslims, I just can't emphasize this enough to you. I'm, uh, you know, Muslim women and Muslim men were created in the image of God. They are the imago Dei just as much as you and I are. I mean, even as Muslims, they are the imago Dei as much as you and I are. I mean, his intention was not that they be Muslims. But, but that's, that's what we get to do. We get to relate the truth about Jesus to fellow imago Dei people, Right? Even in, even, even in spite of all the things that we're seeing, Mark could talk to you a lot more about the conflict that's going on right now, um, you know, in Gaza and, and, how, and how grievous it is for Israel and how grievous it is for Palestinians at the same time, right? Imago Dei, Imago Dei. Just remember, Islam is a counterfeit faith, but that Muslim neighbor that you have is that Imago Dei person that God has placed in front of you so that you can reach. Now, let's just give you some um, simple practice about that. So we're going to move on um, back to the next, the next slide, please, and we're going to talk about hospitality. So the Prophet Muhammad has, had, has said some things about hospitality that are almost as um, jolting as, um, as modesty. Uh, hospitality is a very important component, a component of Islamic practice. So Islam's 
Okay, we can take it to the next slide, please. And I have this, uh, that's my favorite. <laughs> we were with our language teacher one time in Pakistan. And he, um, and we were having pomegranate juice. And he stopped for a moment and he said, do you know what this is? Yeah, you know, it's anar juice, pomegranate, anar. Yeah, you know. He says, we have a saying in Pakistan. He goes, ek anar sobimar. In Pakistan, the pomegranate, and you'll find it in most Eastern cultures, the pomegranate has a lot of value. It's, it's, um, it's medicinal. We even believe that here. If you're sick, you want to get a hold of a pomegranate. If you're childless, you want to get a hold of a pomegranate. I mean, it has all kinds of, there's superstition wrapped around it, but it's, a, it's that favorite fruit, right? So, so he says, so he says, ek anar sobimar. That means one pomegranate, but there are a hundred sick people. And the Lord spoke to me right then and there. And he said, it's just like saying, you got all these Muslims, but you just have one or two or a handful of people who care about reaching them. Like they need what you have. Like you're it. You know, every, Muslim, every Christian woman is every Muslim woman's best, if not only hope for heaven. Think about it. Men, you guys, you know, men have more opportunity than women do to hear the good news about Jesus. But men too, you know, you could be, you, you, could, you could put, hey, I am in the place of that, what I just said. Yeah, as a Muslim man, as a Christian man, I am every Muslim man's best hope for heaven. And we just want to leave you with that today as we tell you about how to do culture. So um, hospitality and culture. My friend Donna, the one who gave me my veil, She's just recently gotten her PhD in matters of hospitality in the Muslim world. And she defines hospitality in the best way that I know how. And so I'm quoting her on it. It's the essence of her, her dissertation. Hospitality is the heart of God in action. So we're going to talk a little bit about biblical hospitality as opposed to Islamic hospitality. So... Um, she puts it this way, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's gracious hospitality. He begins by providing the lovely garden in Eden, that home for Adam and Eve. And then he ends by offering everyone an eternal home in heaven. And everything in between is his hospitality. And you know, when you think about it, and you think about it in terms of your hospitality, it's just very moving. So um, in, in Islam, Muslim hospitality originates primarily, the next slide please, um, from, uh, from pre-Islamic Bedouin tribal practices. So Muslims learned their hospitality from Bedouin people, really, that existed before them. But then, according to the Quran and the Hadith, hospitality, like every other good deed that would be expected of a Muslim, is mainly a matter of obedience and merit, because it's mandated. Okay, the prophet Muhammad highly, highly values hospitality and he, and he, and, and there are ways to do it and there are ways not to do it that Muslims read about, particularly in the Hadith. But hospitality is very, very, very important to a Muslim. But to the Muslim at the end of the day, it's about whether or not I get to go to paradise, right? Because it's a good deed. When for us, it's about 
it's about the journey there. It's all about what heaven's going to be like, right? The hospitality of God, our Father. Muslims, you know, you know, they don't have a Father God. He's Allah, and and you know, to say that He's my Father is 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 a blasphemous. No, but I I am going to I'm going to spend my eternity with my hospitality God, Father, um, Lord, Savior everything, uh, bearing in mind everything that the Father has done for us through um, his son also. In Islam, you go to the next slide, please. The one, um, this is a hadith. Um, The one who believes in Allah Almighty and the judgment day should respect guests, right? So you're, you're, you've got to know that on judgment day, it's going to be very important that you would have been hospitable. But here's what I want you to know. And you can go to the next slide. Even though This is true about hospitality in Islam. I have never received hospitality from a Muslim woman that wasn't completely sincere and probably totally unaware of the fact that it's supposed to be a good deed that she does. She does it because culturally it is highly valued and it's her way of expressing her love and and regard and respect for you. And it's part of this honor-based culture. It's very honorable to be hospita- uh, hospitalitarian. Um, the next slide, that's the verse that we, um, that we share when we want you to see exactly um, what, you know, what a Muslim lives their life for. It's judgment day. There's going to be a big scale. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you have a chance of getting into paradise. Um, otherwise, Allah will have to be very merciful to you. Um, uh, what we want to talk about is um, Muslim women. Muslims believe that hospitality is a guest's right, and as such, it's their duty and their pleasure as hosts to be hospitable for Allah's sake and for their guests. So I just want to tell you that when you have a Muslim friend, this is what you can expect from her or him. Next slide. Next slide. She gives her best. I mean, so our Muslim friends, anytime we go to their house, they're already like bringing out food before you even get in the door almost. They would have a shelf in their freezer for guest food. Like it's already prepared. They, there's a saying that every piece of food has someone's name on it. So when you come and you ring the doorbell and you're a guest, that piece of food is for you. That's a God thing, right? And that's, that's how they believe. Um, and um, even though, even though Islamic etiquette suggests that guests should be predetermined, like people shouldn't show up like out of nowhere because the prophet had that problem a big time in his house. And uh, people were coming in all the time and, you know, at all hours and speaking openly to his wives. And, and he got tired of that. And Allah also provided for that. Um, and there became some, uh, you know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to have a time sort of when you're able to visit, but in the culture, there never is like your doorbell can ring anytime. You've got to be ready in season and out of season. And she is, she is, and she gives her best. We have been to people's house when we've known that they're serving us something that they would never afford to eat on their own. Like they'll run to the store and get something like a soda that they'll never, they would never buy for themselves because they can't afford it. We're talking, you know, extremely poverty um, stricken places. Muslims will be that way there. And, and she will, um, she'll always be that way no matter what. Honestly, um, uh, th- th- this is just, this is just true. She's going to give you her very best. In the Islamic greeting, the assalamu alaikum, 
and wa alaikum assalam. You've all heard that, right? You know, assalamu alaikum. Well, this is a word that means peace. And this is, this is a very part of the hospitality greeting. It's, you know, peace be upon you and also upon you. Muslim get credits for the for the, you know, for that, for the merit of the good deed scales, um, even if, if they greet genuinely or in the right kind of Arabic or, you know, I mean, I mean that greeting is super, super important and it's a means to bless. And I mean, you know, when we, we don't know how to do this. Oh God, I don't know. I'm just supposed to say hello. What do I do? God, just pray and ask the Lord to bless your very first hello to take that greeting and that, okay, so what if I don't know how to do this? I'm going to step into it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love people like you do. And God knows it. We're not just talking about Muslims here, but you know, that greeting, um, ask him to help you from the very start to bless that greeting. And um, uh, as you open your heart to Muslim friends. So hospitality is a frame of heart, and that's where we want to go with this. I want you to know that when you go into a Muslim home, they're going to serve you drink. Drink very quickly. They'll offer you at least a drink of water before you're very far into the door. They won't typically bring it to you in a bottle or a plastic cup. They're going to put it in a glass on a little plate. I mean, it's going to be done right, and you're going to be offered hospitality as soon as you walk in. Then they'll always offer food, and it will be their best. So many stories about hospitality here. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Their, their hospitality is good. It's mandated, but it's so good. She's always ready. She's always ready. You knock on the door and she's always, um, she's always ready. She gives you her best and she is always ready. <laughs> one time um, we went to pick up one of our, um, one of our uh, guests at the airport. It was for a general council. And she was coming all the way from India, Muslim background believer. And um, we, I went and picked her up so excited that Sophia was going to be here. Actually, it was going to be for the launch of Say Hello. So we, so we brought her in and um, I take her to her hotel. It's a really, you know, nice hotel. And I'm so excited that, you know, I get to bring her to this hotel. And she walks in and she's parched. <laughs> Sophia, she just didn't mince words. You know, she would say, Linda, I'm so thirsty. And, uh, you know, and she says, where's there some water? And, um, and I said, well, we looked around, you know, and there were, there were bottles of water in the hotel and they had a price tag on them of $5. And she lost it. She goes, what is this? I come to this country that's affluent. I'm in this gorgeous hotel. If you would come to my country into a hotel, they would give you water at the door. I come into this place and I have to pay for the first drink of water that I get. I mean, it was awful to her, right? And then I felt really bad because I hadn't taken a bottle of water to the airport in the first place, right? You just learn these things. But just always, when, you, when, you're, when your guest comes in, have something ready because she is always going to be ready for you. And she's always going to make sure that there is more than enough. So you know this shame on our culture that we talked about. It would be very, very shameful if you went to someone house, someone's house for food or you went to a Muslim wedding or any kind of a function where there were hospitality served and um, you didn't have enough food. You think about the wedding of Cana. Have you guys watched The Chosen? I mean, the wedding of, that wedding of Cana story, I just thought, oh my goodness, that's right where we lived. If, I mean, think of how Jesus honored the groom in that family. Not only did he provide the wine, but he provided the 
best wine. This is Muslim hospitality. It's like this, right? Um, Jesus's motive were, were eternal and theirs really aren't. They're just about being very good hosts for the most part. So what we get to do is that we get to extend God's hospitality to Muslim friends so that they can know and trust him personally and have um, the assurance of life with him forever. And it really, guys, friends, this is not a go, I gotta go, I gotta do this. This is gonna be so hard, but oh God, I give myself, what a sacrifice. No, this is a, I get to do this kind of a thing. This is an opportunity. This is a, this is the Lord saying, she's reachable. She's your neighbor. Go find her. You know, talk to her, visit with her, hospitality, do this, do life with your Muslim neighbors. So um, if you'll take those, uh, you can hand out those papers now, Emily, if you'd like. We have a, uh, a printout for you uh, that we have provided that offers some goodie, some do's and don'ts. And I'm going to go over them very quickly, but you're going to take them home as well. Okay. So number one, modesty matters, right? So modesty matters. Um, just, I typically will wear a slacks with a tunic and maybe just a little scarf around my neck. I don't wear the veil here in the United States, but I'm modest. You can imagine my surprise one time. I went to my Muslim friend's house. I'm, I'm at her house for the first time. This is in the United States. Her husband comes to the door, sticks his hand out for me to, to, to shake it. And I, I mean, I know better than to shake his hand right? He's trying to be generous with me, so he's shaking his hand, but I held back, and I, I put my hands to my heart, and I said, oh, Mahad, thank you, and, and thank you for inviting me um, to your home. Thank you for the privilege of being with you guys here, and, and then, he was, then he was very reassured that he wasn't going to be forced into doing things that were uncomfortable for him, because I understood that um, the importance of modesty and, and, and modest behavior with him as well. Here's the thing, open the door and my friend's standing at the door. I've only seen her with a full abaya and hijab until now, right? She's in spandex. Like, I thought, <laughs> whoa, is this really you? And, you know, it wasn't long before I was just like wrapped up in the spandex with, with her because she just extended her arms and drew me in and gave me a big hug and kissed my cheeks and, um, and went into their house and they immediately served me food. And then she had made me a Black Forest chocolate cake and we had cake before food because she was so excited about what she had done. We had a wonderful time. You learn so much from your Muslim friends. One thing that you learn is that they don't love dogs. So pet peeves. Next slide. It's helpful hints, pet peeves. Yeah, if you have a pet, I mean, especially here in the United States, a lot of Muslims have pets here too. So don't be too alarmed. But Muslims typically don't like dogs if uh, they are um, touched by a dog before prayer time. They have to wash because Muslims have a washing ritual that they do before they pray, or at least in the morning, at least once a day, but sometimes more. Especially on Fridays, our landlord, I mean, he loved our dog every day of the week except Friday. We would hear him outside going, no, Danny, no, no, no. We had a dog, but we knew... How, you know, when and how to create the dog. So just be familiar, ask your friends, is it okay, are you guys okay with dogs? They don't, the prophet, did, the prophet didn't like dogs, but he did like cats. So Muslims have cats for pets sometimes. And hunting dogs are okay, according to Muslims too. So, you know, during Ramadan, there's a night of power when um, paradise, uh, you know, when, when Allah releases these hosts of angels, like thousands and thousands of them, 
and they are looking for people who are diligently praying or reading the Quran. If you have a dog, a dog in your house that is, especially if it's a black dog, well, the angel of blessing can't come to you. Those are the kinds of things that they believe about pets. But not everybody knows those things about your pets, right? So you just always ask, always ask. And and next, left or right. So, I mean. This is, this is true with your friends here too. Um, the left hand is used for personal hygiene. We'll just be frank with you. So it's best not to serve food or, you know, shake hands with your left hand or do those kinds of things um, that are, that are going to be offensive to your Muslim friend. That's another thing you can ask your Muslim friend, but be careful. Like when we go to the store in Muslim context, we will hand people money and receive money with our right hand. We're not going to use our left hand for things that are important like that, right? It's not that you can't completely use your left hand. It's not like you can't extend your left hand in a hug and all that. But when it comes to food and, um, and some other things, you just want to be careful to always use your right hand. Muslim, yeah. So I'll make this fast. So one time we were in Turkey with this missionary couple. We were in this very rural area of Turkey. So the missionary had his two kids with, and the son, Stanley, as this, this farm couple invited us into their home. And, the, and I was going in first, and Stanley whispered to me, Uncle Mark, it wasn't my nephew, but that's what missionary kids call each other. Uncle Mark, <clears throat> when you enter the home, enter with your right foot, <clears throat> and then go in. So um, I did, and the young son of the farmer was watching which foot I entered first. Never experienced that in the Muslim world at all. Then when we left, he said, make sure when you leave that the last foot out of the house is your right foot. It's the site of blessing. The only other place in the Muslim world I saw that, doesn't mean you do it here, was in Hong Kong. I went into a mosque in Hong Kong, and there was a sign that says, please enter with your right foot. And then when you left, there was a sign that said, please leave with your left foot. I thought, Wow, this is involved. <laughs> it's also like when you go into the bathroom, you go left foot first and you come out right foot first because the jinn are known to be hang around in bath to they, they like to hang around in bathrooms and so it's also best. And then there's also a prayer that Muslims pray before going into the bathroom and a prayer that they could pray coming out to make sure that they're not um, impacted by these jinn spirits that Mark was talking about earlier. There's so many things like like you talk you know, you think of think Pharisee and then think times a gazillion because that's the way Muslims lead their lives. So, um, gives you an idea. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're learning with your Muslim friend, it's, I, I mean, it's fun because they're gracious and they teach you and you learn in every good way, right? You don't, you don't have to be afraid to step out in friendship because your friends will always help you to know the right way to do things. And they're expecting you to help them in your culture too. And some of when you are when you're dealing with second and third generation Muslims, you don't have nearly these issues, right? Um, so the fifth, my husband's already mentioned it, is respect for the text. Um, uh, Muslims keep their 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 holy books on the highest shelf of their house, or they'll carry them in really special um, packaging. They um, they don't ever write in them. That would be. Uh, that would be very um, desecrating to the Quran. So when you are sharing, you know, faith with a Muslim, the, make sure that the Bible that you use isn't marked up. And it and it and, and it's best if it's not an old ratty one. You know, like for us, the 
the rattier, the, you feel a little better about it. Do you know Muslims who have like a, a gray scar on their heads? They, they kind of like that. That means that they, they pray a lot. Some Muslims don't even make it so that they have a scar even if they don't pray a lot. But, you know, because they they're always hitting their, their head to the floor. So a lot of older Muslim men have like a, a dark spot on their heads. That's what it's from. And it's an honor to have a dark spot on your head. Um, so uh, our, rat, our ratty Bibles, <laughs> that's ours. <laughs> it, means we're good, it means we're good Christians, right? That's what Muslims think. Open heart, open home. What we want you to know is especially for Muslim women, guys, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna meet up with friends on the outside. Um, you're probably gonna go to coffee shops and stuff and you'll be invited into the home. Um, you, you can be invited into the home also, but it typically happens with women first because women know that their home is their safest place. So um, girls, you would be invited to the home before men would be for the most part. And that's really a cool thing because when you get into a Muslim's home, just like you get into your home, you know, I don't know, it's just a more intimate place to talk to visit, to get to know each other. And, you know, sort of the, the story kind of goes, well, you go out and you start, you start in the living room and then you, you wind up in the kitchen and then pretty soon you're, you're in her bedroom. Because there, there aren't those space sort of limitations in, in that culture. And it's true, I mean, figuratively speaking, as well as physically speaking, the home is a wonderful place to be able to reach out to your Muslim friend. Guys too, so often what happens is that women um, will begin by reaching out and then the men will meet through the women's friendships and um, then families visit families. So um, that's just, boy, a whole lot in a nutshell because there's so much that we want to say. Here's the thing that we want you to take away from here. Do it. Just do it. Like, do it where, you know, you know a little bit about it. Now do it. Um, when you are a guest or a host, this is always really nice. You'll, you might experience it before um, you do it. But if you are the first one to visit your Muslim friend, bring along a small gift. Don't make it too lavish because then she'll feel like she has to do as much when she comes to you. But just bring a small gift, candy or something, and, you know, be thankful for being invited to their home. Muslims, all the Muslims I've ever known take off their shoes in their houses, right? Even here in the United States. So always offer to remove your shoes. And sometimes they'll say, no, no, you don't have to. But if you see that they're in their sock feet, take your shoes off, right? And then, and then um, when they come into your house, um, offer them the opportunity to take their shoes off. I just soon take my shoes off. Actually, we take our shoes off at our house most of the time, just because we're used to it now. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of filth brought into the homes and Muslims, there's, hygiene is a big part of their faith practice. So um, when you're a guest, greet warmly. Man-to-man, uh, -man, woman woman-to-woman, men will hug, they'll shake hands. Women will hug and kiss. And it's one time on one side of cheek, another, sometimes it's up, up to three times. It's kind of an in-the-air kiss, like... Latinos, you get that, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Mark will tell you the first time he went to a church where there were a bunch of Latinos and got kissed by men. Okay, so, yeah. Sit where you're directed. This is very important. Don't assume that, don't assume that you get to sit just anywhere. Muslims will protect you with their seating. So um, I always knew that when... I had a certain Muslim friend and we were eating at a restaurant. I knew that I wasn't going to sit her by a window where she could be visible to men who were passing by. I'm not gonna sit her really close to the door because they believe that you should, as a guest, you should be seated in the safest 
part of the room where you're sitting. So that if someone were to storm through your door and try to hurt somebody, I mean, that, that's, that's the ancient thinking. That's not going to happen here. But it's still the practice. And it's a sweet practice. Because in their minds, they're honoring you by putting you in a place, in a part of, you know, in, in a seat that's honorific. Just don't take the honor on to yourself. And know that when you have Muslim friends, girls especially, I mean, windows, and just keep them, just keep them away from the fray, right? Just keep them away from where there's lots of men. And, and ask them where they're more, more comfortable being seated. Remember to favor your right hand. You're going you're gonna to mess up, and it's okay. Just favor your right hand. It's best not to initiate a prayer over the meal unless you are the host or invited to do so. Some Muslims pray over their food too. They do the bismillah. Um, if, um, but, but they won't. I mean, when you're in your house and you're the host, they, they like it when you pray for your meal. And they'll often then pray for theirs as well. Um, and then eat what you're served to the very best of your ability Oh my goodness. I might not should say this. Anyway, just got back from Papua New Guinea. Love it, love it, love it. But we had some new food. <laughs> it really, I mean, it, it really was good. So, um, so it's a tribal, it's a tribal practice. It's a food, it's called saksak. If you look it up, they, um, they, they down a palm tree and then they split the, um, the, the tree in half and they gather the insides of the bark and they make kind of a pine, um, like, a, I'm sorry, a palm flower out of it. And it becomes very gelatinous. And they'll put like, ours, ours had like um, coconut and lemon in it, a very subtle coconut and lemon taste. But the texture and the look was a bit alarming and they, they, I think they knew that it was a bit alarming to us because they were kind of watching to see what we did with it. But it was something, it's a, it's a meal that's really hard to fix, right? It takes a long time. And one of the Bible school student girls fixed it for us herself. So it was really, really special. It looked like um, a jellyfish, right? So, I mean, so what? You pick up the fork and you eat it, right? Just pick up the fork and you eat it. And you find out most of the time it's, it's going to be okay. Um, no, I mean, no. Yeah. It just depends, you know, on where, on where you live. Like, you know, I mean, and, and if you're going to be served something weird, it's just because it's the food everybody eats. And it's, yeah. Okay. So let's just, let me just say this really quick. So if you're a guest, uh, so if you're a host, prior to the visit, ask if there are any food restrictions. Make sure that you know. Now, now, now expect this. This has happened to us a number of times. Even though they say they can eat your food, they'll be scared too. So they, because, because they, they don't do alcohol and they don't do pork, but there are a lot of derivatives of pork in our food. So like our gelatin might have pork derivatives in it. Um, our vanilla has a tad of alcohol in it if it's really the good kind and they won't want to eat your sweets if it has vanilla in it some people don't mind but most of them might I mean you gotta you gotta be aware of that right so our our friends our Muslim friends typically bring food and that way they know they have something to eat and they bring enough to share and sometimes I mean one time I had worked so hard on the meal and I thought oh my goodness they're not even gonna eat it and they didn't because they were scared 
right? They were scared, but it was okay. Their food was delicious, so we all ate well. Okay, um, some, so Muslims like certain foods more than others because the prophet liked them. And, he's, and he talked about it. I mean, in the Hadith, so just so you know, as long as it's halal is permissive, permittable, and haram is, uh, is um, not allowed, not permitted, right? So pork and alcohol are haram. Any fish that has a skeletal system, Muslims will eat, but they don't like the others, okay? Yeah, exactly. So it's not much different. So meat, these are, these are mostly the words of the prophet as recorded in the hadith. Meat is the king of all foods. Next. Yes. Next. That looks like lamb. Barley is good for fevers when used in soup. The prophet would tell people this. Here's the next. A house without dates is a house without food. You know Muslims love dates. They break their fast with them. Honey is the cure for every illness. Didn't your grandma tell you that? Yep. Next one. The fig is the fruit of paradise. Who would not want to eat figs? Figs are like prominent in the marketplace. Pure milk, easy and pleasant to swallow for those who drink it. The prophet encouraged everyone to drink milk. The prophet loved grapes. Everyone said that the prophet loved grapes. I don't have his words here. They purify the blood, provide vigor and health, strengthen the kidneys, and cleanse the intestines. So here is a verse from the Quran. Allah is the light of the heavens and earth. The example of his light is that of a niche in which there's a lamp. The lamp is in a glass. The glass looks like a brilliant star. It is lit by the oil of a blessed tree, the olive, which is neither eastern nor western. They have a lot of olives in the Muslim world. Um, and here's another one. The Holy Prophet said, none of his women who are pregnant and eat watermelon will fall to produce good-looking, excuse me, none of his women who are pregnant and eat watermelon or any other kind of melon will fail to produce good-looking offspring. Did you know that? If you want a, if you want a pretty, yes. If you want a pretty baby, you eat melon. The prophet has said in a holy saying, "There is no pomegranate unless there is a seed in it from paradise, and I would like not to miss a single seed in it." This is in the um, hadith. Yes. And spiritual dialogue next. Just, just want you to know. Just want you to know, you know what? I've never, I've never been with a Muslim where I didn't have a spiritual conversation. In our church, in, in Evangel Temple, we had some people who kind of latched on to the idea of outreaching to Muslims. And we don't have very many of them in Springfield. But, but a lady in the church, you know, latched on to it and she just started stuff. It wasn't even me. She started it. So we had, every other Thursday, we had conversations in our conversation groups in our church so that students at the local university who were learning English could, you know, learn English. We did all kinds of things. This was, this was um, our, then our kids did things together. This was at the church and it was around a table at a Thanksgiving um, celebration that we had that we invited our Muslim friends to. Guys, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I mean, can I just tell you this one story? It is so amazing. So this is like the first time we're doing conversation group. And I have a volunteer who, um, he, he's, a, he's a very learned man, a former um, assistant superintendent of schools uh, where we were. And uh, he volunteers for most everything in the church. There's nothing that man won't do. He's precious. I mean, he is amazing. So he volunteered for this, but he was a little nervous, a lot nervous about his first encounter with the Muslim. So 
on this night, and this is an exchange, a student exchange with our local university. So these students, all of these, these um, students were coming in and they came to the United States with their families. It was a unique situation. So it wasn't just students, but it was students and their families. So men and women came in through the door with their kids and whatever. And um, so this one man um, hikes over to the men's side. They sort of separated naturally. So the women went to one side and the men to another. We wondered how that was going to work and they did it, took care of it. So they went over to the Men, uh, he went over to the men's side and he pulls our friend aside and very quietly he says, is there a cross in this church? The cross is anathema to Muslims. Muslims don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe that when he went to the cross, the, that, that Allah miraculously substituted him with another person because um, you know, that, that's such a humiliating death for a prophet and Allah would never allow it. So then he took um, Esau with him and Esau will come back one day and when he returns, he is going to help to make the whole world Muslim before judgment day, right? He's, he's part of that eschatology, but it's for a whole different thing. So anyway, but the cross is anathema, like the cross is blasphemous, right? So anyway, he says, is there a cross in this church? And Ken goes, well, yeah. Do you want to see it? He goes, yes. I mean, this is all like secret. So, um, so Ken has a ways of getting in the church. So he takes him to the, to the auditorium and he took him in there. And I mean, we girls, we were, the rest of us stayed out doing our thing that night. At the end of the night, Ken comes out and he's teary-eyed and he's just so excited. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And he says, you know what? I got to tell this Muslim, I got to present the whole gospel to him. I got to tell him all about the cross. And the man wasn't like asking because he wanted to sneer or, you know, be ugly about something. He was asking because he was seeking and he wanted to know what Christians believed about the cross. He wanted to see it with his own eyes and he wanted to hear it with his own ears from a Christian believer who faithfully shared it the very first time. He had an opportunity to have that conversation with him. You know what? Ken didn't know anything about Muslims. He didn't ask for this spiritual conversation. But this spiritual conversation happened every single night. I've never had a time with a Muslim where there wasn't some sort of spiritual conversation. Not the kind of conversation that puts you on edge or makes you feel like you don't know what you're going to say next. Or, you know, where you've got to feel like you've got to explain the Trinity to and all this kind of stuff. It's just simple stuff like, oh, um, oh this one, this one time, this one time, I'm with my Muslim friend, her only son. Muslims prefer boys over girls. So, so she takes her only son. He's going to have some surgery. She's alone. Her husband's had to go back to his country. So I'm with her in the hospital. That's all I did. I just went to her, went to the hospital with her. And she was fine with everything, all of, you know, the registration and everything. But she, when she put that little boy on the gurney, he was a baby. She, when she put him on the gurney, she lost. Utterly lost it. Her only son. And, you know, I put my arms around her and we walked off and we went and we sat down in a waiting room and we just, you know, I just, I just held her and we talked about some hospital things and then out of the blue and I, and, and the conversation, the conversation, I mean, I don't even really remember exactly how it happened, but it went to Jesus. And, you know, you get to share bits and pieces here and there. And then when you, when you leave that meeting, you get to say, oh, Jesus, thank you, because I know that every encounter counts. And you're the only one who saves anyway. But you gave me the opportunity for this conversation, and I was faithful to have it, right? But then out of the blue, my friend goes, she was very quiet. And then she goes, Linda, 
do you have like one of your books that's in English and Arabic? Because she was learning English and I was helping her. I said, what are you talking about? She says, you know, your book, your book, like your book, my book, my book. And I thought, she's wanting a Bible. She's wanting a Bible. And so I said, Khalud, do you mean like my religious book, like my book book? Like, do I have one in English in English and Arabic? And she said, yes, that one, that one. And I said, yeah, I do. Do you want one? She goes, yes, I want it. So I know that she's going back home. And I know that she doesn't, she's, she's, she's taken this book and her husband doesn't know it and her parents don't know it. And I say, Kalud, you know, when you go back to your country, this could be, it could be really bad for you to have this in your suitcase. And she goes, I know. You're sure you want this book? Before I gave it to her, I said, you're sure that you're sure that you're sure that you want this book? Finally, I had asked her a few times and she says, Linda, she says, just so you know, I called my in-laws. I told them, could I have the book? They said, yes. I called my parents. I told them, could I have the book? They said, yes. I asked my husband, can I have the book? He said, yes. Give me the book. <laughs> that was the last conversation we had before we, you know, we were at the airport and said goodbye to them. This is... And that's the next slide. Yes. So this is, I mean, this, this is why we're here today. We've gone over. I knew we would. And we started late though, okay? So this is our heart. We hope it's your heart. It's just been a peek into the world that we've lived for years and years and years. So there's a whole lot more to this. We want you to know that you get to do this, that every opportunity, every encounter counts, that Muslims are reachable. And that there's the cool thing, that when you share faith with a Muslim, I promise you, you will get to see Jesus do. You will see the Holy Spirit in action in ways that you never imagined you would see it happen. So as you walk a Muslim to the feet of the cross, then your life also, your life in Jesus deepens and grows and gets better and better. That's a promise. Here you go. Okay, so if you were missionaries going to Pakistan or Indonesia or uh, Nigeria or something like that, and you're going to minister to Muslims, here are five things I would teach you. So these carry over any place in the world. This is the results of a survey done with 700 Muslims from different parts of the world and ethnic groups that came to Jesus. Here are the results of the survey done with them after the question was asked, why did you come to embrace Jesus as your Savior? The first and most given reason was a relationship with a Christian. So Luke 10.2, you have to initiate the friendships. It's your responsibility as a Christ follower, not the Muslim's responsibility. As Linda talked about hospitality, you will find them the most hospitable people and the intimacy of bringing them into your home and going into their home is what builds relationship like none other. The second most given reason as to why they converted was they received a Bible. Now, find out what their first language is. What language did they dream in? If they're from Pakistan, just don't assume it's Urdu. They could speak Baluch. It could be their first language. It could be Punjabi. But say, hey, what, what's your first language? And let them, when they tell you their first language, get a hold of the International Bible Society and get them a Bible. Don't give them a cheap paperback, but get them a nice Bible in that language. Don't get a black-covered Bible because black's considered to be a curse. Try to get a green-colored Bible on the cover because green is the color of paradise, all right? So get them 
a Bible in their first language and give it to them. Chances are they may end up giving you a Quran. That's okay. Receive it. Read it. Often I will say to my Muslim friend, hey, I read your holy book. Have you read mine? Let it be the beginning. Because once they start reading the inspired word of God, the Holy Spirit begins to speak into their lives. I've led Muslims to Christ this way many times. Not because I'm a missionary. This is what you can do. This is nothing unique because I'm a missionary. There's nothing unique about it at all. All of us can do it. That's how the body of Christ goes, grows. Next, they came to faith thirdly because of signs, wonders, and miracles. As I said, Islam is a powerless religion. So any chance you have to pray with your Muslim friend, just simply ask. I do this in mosques. I've done this in mosques all over the world. I'll say at the end, you know, as followers of Jesus, we believe that he answers prayer. Is there anything you would like to pray about? Invariably, sick mother, sick father, child sick, need for a job, need for a position. I got to the point in the government of Pakistan when I was registering Teen Challenge that they would expect me to ask them, because anytime I finished a meeting with the government official, I'd say, is there anything we can pray about? He would tell me, God would answer prayer. They saw me as a person of power. You get tremendous favor. So when God answers prayer, you may say, well, what if God doesn't answer prayer? What am I going to do? You can't answer prayer anyway. But when you pray, you become a conduit for the power of God. So let God and pray in the name of Jesus. Not in the name of the holy God that all the world. No, pray in the name of Jesus. Because in the Quran, Jesus is known as a healer. So pray in the name of Jesus for signs, wonders, and miracles. It fits our Pentecostal theology. Fourth, experiencing God's love. We've talked all morning about God being a transcendent God, as close as a jugular, but no personal relationship. When they start reading the scriptures and they start experiencing the power of God, they start realizing that, realizing that God is a God of love. And then lastly, number five, the Muslim world today. So many young people, Gen Xers, the millennials, are disillusioned with Islam. You know, when you see the heads of people falling off, and this kind of stuff, they're asking, wait a minute, I thought this was a religion of peace and tolerance, but this is the last thing this is. So there's a great disillusionment in the Muslim population with Islam as well. But these things, primarily, those top three, relationships, receiving the word of God, and signs, wonders, and miracles, and from what Linda taught, all of that is wrapped in hospitality. The church needs to become the new ummah for Muslims who start coming to faith in Jesus. The church must become the new ummah, and it begins by you reaching out and becoming a friend. You're the beginning of that new ummah. So let me pray for you before we dismiss this, this morning, this afternoon. As Linda said, usually we do this teaching in three hours, and we're just coming in shy of that. So let's pray, and pray that God uses you. Um, missions is not where, but whom. It's not place but it's, it's here, it's now. So let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this time that we've had with Belmont Assembly. God, thank you for these folks sacrificing their mourning, but really it's a sacrifice to sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that they will take in all that they have learned this morning and they will build on that, that they will grow it. And Lord, that you will use them mightily to touch the Muslim peoples that you have willed and ordained according to Acts chapter 17 verses 24 through 27 that you have ordained in history at this time to live in the city of Chicago, to be their neighbors, to be in this community. And I pray that you will lead them and guide them to develop relationships, that they will share the word of God, 
that you will lead them to pray and see your word confirmed in signs, wonders, and miracles as they are done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So we commit them to you to this end. In Jesus' strong name, amen. One last site here. Look at wikiislam.net. I don't know who did this. I think it's former Muslims who did this. They never tell you who it is, but there's a ton of information here. And you can even read the Quran in chronological order because like the Bible, the Quran is not in chronological order. Thank you. Can you give it up for Mark and Linda, guys? Amen. I know that was a lot of information to take in in a short time. And so make sure that you pour over the resources that were given to you. Take time to really understand it, ask questions. They're going to be with us this weekend. So they'll be serving in both services tomorrow and in our young adult service in the evening where we do some Q&A. If you sneak in in the back door, I won't say anything. But, um, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me, and I think it's, it's kind of working out here. We were talking about Emily I and Angelique. Well, what kind of setup do we want? And. You know, do we want to just have the, the chairs out? And we thought, well, with the amount of people that have registered, which I think this, this, this kind of format fits perfectly for a smaller, more intimate group. We said, well, let's put tables out and chairs around them. And you know, one thing that I've always kind of believed in my heart is that you're going to have a higher probability to reach the loss around the table than you would around the pulpit. And so if we can learn to embrace the table, learn to embrace community and, and everything that they mentioned, uh, I mean, it's such a a clear and easy path. And I love what Mark said earlier. You want to make friends, be friendly. And so you want to reach anyone, the Muslim community, the agnostic community, the atheist community. It starts with being friendly and, and extending an opportunity to sit at a table and have conversations and have friendships and letting them know that you care more about them than trying to convert them. Because a lot of people already have their, their guard up. I mean, we're from Chicago. Anytime anyone I don't know talks to me, my guard is up. Like, what do you want? And what are you trying to do? And so it's at that table where you can lower those guards and the love of Christ can begin to blend in. So I just want to say thank you guys for taking time on a rainy, cold Saturday morning uh, to be here. It says a lot about your heart for the loss and your heart for what God is trying to do. And I was telling the hospitals earlier, uh, we can't afford to be ignorant Christians. We have to be informed. We have to be able to understand what God's calling us to do and why he's calling us to do it. And so uh, thank you for that. Last couple of things. Before you leave, if you can help us clear the tables, and then there's still some, some snacks in the back, some Turkish delights. We'd love for you to take those if you want to eat them. Um, otherwise, we'll probably pack them up and give it to the young adults tomorrow. But I'd rather not give them day-old stuff. So if you want to grab yourself some, there's also some coffee left over. Man, that was good. Make sure you take that. Amen. Thank you guys for coming, and we will see you tomorrow morning, bright and early at church. Hold up. Yeah, just one more thing. I just want to say... Um, Emily was with Say Hello before she came to you. So I had her first. And um, we are just really so grateful to Emily for all that she did for us. When she volunteered with Say Hello for a period of time, she was so excited about coming here. And we want you to know that, um, yeah, Emily, thank you for helping to pull this together today. And... Um, you got a good deal right here. She's amazing. Just really love Emily very much.